I try so hard. <laughs> Boom, and we're live, Hamilton Morris. Sober as fuck. How about you? Absolutely sober. Yes, this time. So we did a podcast seven years ago, and most people apparently didn't know how fucked up we were. But uh, I figured, damn, we're here with Hamilton Morris. We should go deep. And we just kept hitting that joint till I lost most of my grasp on reality while we're talking. <laughs> it was just a very slippery conversation. I was just too high to form coherent thoughts. It was just whatever I pieced together was just, uh, it was, you know, it was almost like miming a conversation. <laughs> but now seven years later and you have a new place. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. Well, you were at the early days. We did it at my house. Yeah. That was way, way, way back in the day. I had no idea, really. I knew who you were, of course, but I didn't know about your podcast entirely. I'd seen clips of you on YouTube, and it wasn't until I was driving home from that recording and my phone just filled with hundreds of emails that I realized, oh, wow, this is a, a serious phenomenon that I was not aware of. <laughs> and now I see it's just become huge. It's a weird thing, dude. It, it's, uh, it's got the wheel. I just sort of have to show up. It's a very strange, and, and it sounds like um, false modesty or something like that, but I'm just being totally honest. Like, this thing does itself. I think a lot of it might have to do with the long form, because yeah. people are so used to seeing people's opinions condensed and filtered into these sound bites and snippets, and to hear an extended conversation with someone where they can actually tell stories and articulate their opinions in a nuanced, careful way is so rare. I agree. Um, it's one of the reasons why I don't do those shows anymore, like panel shows and things like that. It's yeah. just so frustrating. Oh, it's insane. I have very little experience with that sort of thing, but I did Dr. Oz um, <laughs> <laughs> last one year. One of the worst ones. Yes. And I don't know how any normal person could function in that sort of environment. I mean, I have a TV show, so arguably I'm well-trained for that sort of thing. But unless you're an actor who's prepared a line to say as soon as they point at you, there's no way that you could function because it's not a genuine conversation. It's just an opportunity to launch one sentence sound bites and then audience applause. Yeah. And also the audience is such a strange element to add to a conversation. I mean, if you and I were having this conversation exactly in this, this room, but to the left of us is an enormous group of people. We would feel weird. We would have to address them. We'd have to turn to them. It, it would be odd. Following illuminated applause and yeah. laughter signs. Oh, God, those are the weirdest. When the, there's always the warm-up guy who's like, okay, everybody, we're coming back from break. We're coming back from break. And they hold up the sign, applause, 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 and everybody goes crazy. And they create the worst environment. I was on this uh, discussion about Kratom. Are you familiar with this? I'm this? on it right now. Oh, wow. Yeah, I just but took some. I, I fucked my knee up the other day. I did something, and uh, it's been stiff and painful so i iced it before i came here and then i just took uh took six of them see what happens wow I took it, 10 once Oof. 10 one ten gram pills? capsules or yeah i don't know how much i don't know can you grab that bag there's a bag that's sitting right on the sink i'll tell you exactly what's in it but uh now i get why people might think it's a drug what because, is a drug yeah for sure but when i took four I was like, well, I took two for the first time I took it, I took two. And then a couple times I took two. And I'm like, this is like a mild stimulant. But then when you get into the range of eight to 10 pills, it's like, oh, this, this will fuck you up. This stuff. The stuff I take is Urban Ice Organics. And um, see, it says, 
It says take two. It doesn't say the amount of material in the capsule. What does it say there? 750 milligrams. Okay. So not quite a gram. Not quite a gram. All right. That seems like a, a reasonable amount. But they always construct these things in these ridiculous, dramatic oppositions. Like it was me versus a woman whose son had died of some Kratom-associated overdose. And, you know, it, it turns into a thing like, well, what do you have to say to this woman whose son died? It's like, I don't know. You know, there are people that die from caffeine overdoses as well. It's tragic that this happens. Have people died from this? Yes. They How have- much do you have to take? An enormous amount. I mean, I think a lot of people set up these unrealistic expectations with these drugs where they, if they like a drug, they want to say, it's impossible right. for it to kill anyone. It's right. impossible. There's no possible right. way. If you set that as your standard, you'll always fail because right. people will die doing absolutely everything, running, having sex, defecating. Aspirin. Aspirin, absolutely. There's nothing in this world that can't find its way into a human death. So if people want to say, and even, you know, cannabis, obviously, people say you can't overdose on cannabis, and essentially you can't. But if you look in the medical literature, there are a number of these cannabis-associated fatalities. You know, you can debate them endlessly, but the point is once a drug enters a large enough population, there'll be a number of sensitive individuals and someone will die. It doesn't mean that the drug is dangerous. It means that it's unrealistic to set a standard where if anything bad happens to anyone, we have to decide that the drug is dangerous and should be banned. Yeah, I agree. I mean, look, water kills people. There's a lot of these uh, hazing things where the fraternity kids will be asked to drink a shit ton of water and oh, yeah. people have died from it. A woman died in San Jose a few years back from a a contest to, to drink water to get her son like an Xbox or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that are lethal. But the LD50 for cannabis is like, I mean, you literally have to smoke your body weight or something, right? It's something crazy. It would be very difficult. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that you couldn't get so high that you did something really stupid and wind up dying. Right. Yeah, especially dependent upon the person and the, the, the you know, or biological from, variabilities. Right, right, exactly. And it's just, I think it's also just a sort of a bad road to go down. People always want to emphasize the safety of things. Right. But in my opinion, safety isn't the point. It doesn't ultimately matter to me whether or not something is safe. I think we should have the freedom to do dangerous things if we choose. We're allowed to ride motorcycles. We're allowed to shoot guns. You're allowed to go skydiving and bungee jumping. All those things carry risks, but it's assumed that any adult that does them is aware of those risks. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's it's also who is, if the, the society that we live in was just you and I, was the, we were the only two people alive. Who are you to tell me what I can do or me to tell you what you can do? It's ridiculous. And so when you have grown adults telling a grown adult who's informed what they can and can't do then it becomes a, a question of children well then it becomes a an, an education issue and it becomes a parental issue i mean it's just you, you can't lie to your children about the effects of certain drugs because then they're not going to believe you about the really actual the actual dangerous ones right and this is of course reflected in the the so-called opioid epidemic yes right now yes there's endless finger pointing everyone wants to find a culprit that's behind all of it and the easiest person to blame of course are pharmaceutical companies because everybody hates pharmaceutical companies so why not blame them right but you know and i'm not pro pharmaceutical by any stretch of the imagination but i'm also not anti pharmaceutical either and 
when you look at the way, for example, the New York Times is covering the opioid epidemic, it's always in this tone of like documents were uncovered that show that executives at Purdue Pharma were aware that morphine was addictive as early as 1999. And it's like, well, of course. Of course they were aware. People have known that morphine is addictive for hundreds of years. This is old news. And this whole idea that doctors were convinced by some letter in the New England Journal of Medicine that said that OxyContin isn't addictive is absurd. These are all morphine derivatives. Any adult, especially a medically trained adult, should know that no matter what little variation you make on that molecule, if it's structurally and pharmacologically and qualitatively similar to morphine, of course it's going to be addictive. And that in and of itself isn't even a bad thing. It should be okay to give people addictive drugs as well, as long as everyone's aware of the risks. As long as they understand a protocol to get off of it. You, you know, there's so many people that get on these things and then wind up taking them far longer than they're supposed to because it's easy to, to get hooked. I mean, we need to at least have some sort of responsible direction that these people need to go to to get off of them once they're on them. Because people that get uh, back operations, any anything where they prescribe you uh, high doses of uh, opiates, it's a huge problem. I know many, many people that have gotten hooked because of it. And in fact, I should tell you that my good friend Justin Wren, his wife found out about Kratom because of you. Because oh. of your show, he um, had a problem with his shoulder, got shoulder sol- surgery. They put him on Oxycontins. He was fucked up on them, and he was having a really hard time getting off it, having the shakes really bad, and Kratom is the only thing that got him off of it. Right, and that's not surprising. I mean, this has been known for a very long time in Thailand, and that was actually the reason that it was originally prohibited. I don't know if you're aware of that, but because the government taxed opium um, and people started using Kratom, then they made Kratom illegal. Is that the right way to say it? Because people say Kratom. Yeah, you're the yeah. only one I've heard say Kratom. People in, it's a Thai word. People in Thailand call it Kratom. Oh, okay. So okay. people in the U.S. call it Kratom. It's, I, it's also they have, you know, it's maybe it's like Kratom. Something like right. that, but I'm not going to go that far. Right, 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 but Kratom right. is closer. If you did, it would be weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <I'm> not, <laughs> but I feel, I was, you know, yeah. Like American people that say Ecuador, <laughs> Argentina. But it is Kratom. Yeah. Kratom. Okay. So we'll try to call it Kratom. Or something close to that. It's closer yeah. to that than Kratom. Right. And so the reason why it was made illegal was because of the fact that it was pinching some of the profits off of the opium trade. Yes. Wow. Yeah. That's fucked up. And so this has been known for a long time that it helps people get off more addictive opioids. And How does it do that? Well, it's an opioid itself, and a lot of people don't want to admit or acknowledge that, but I think we need to get beyond this idea that drugs are inherently bad or opioids are inherently bad just because the ones that we're aware of have a lot of problems. You know, in some sense, medicinal chemistry and pharmacology and all this are still in a very primitive state, and there's so much to be learned. So we're mostly giving people these derivatives of morphine that have been around for 100 years, and there are better things. We're going to continuously discover less addictive treatments for pain. And I think that the alkaloids in Kratom are a step in that direction, and in, which is so tragic that they're trying to now make it illegal because this is something that, as far as I can tell, has genuinely helped an enormous number of people reduce their intake of more addictive and more dangerous opioids. Well, one of the things that I felt, I mean, and again, my dose was not extremely high, but when I was on it, I was very coherent. I was clear. It was clear to me that I was affected by something, but uh, it felt kind of good. It didn't feel bad. 
it felt uh, a little uh, a little uneasy, like a little like, whoa, this the world feels a little weird right now. But it did not feel like uh, I was impaired. Like, I know a lot of people who take it and exercise. Like, uh, I have a friend, he'll take 10 pills and exercise. It just, just seems kind of fucking crazy. <laughs> yes. But he says he has a great workout. Right. By taking that stuff before he works out. Yeah, I mean, it seems to lend itself to a lot of different applications. In Thailand, it's used almost exclusively for that sort of purpose. In the South, it's a, a drug that laborers use so that they can, you know, collect the latex from rubber trees and just get their job done. That's what it's about. I mean, that's what opioids are about for a lot of the world, um, both in the United States and in Africa and in Thailand, is, you know, people live hard lives and and manual labor is painful and repetitive and difficult. And anything that makes that a little bit more manageable is a very important tool for humans. I always felt like people that did heroin or opiates or something like that were on a very short road to death. That, that was my perception when I was a kid. And then I had a friend who was a longshoreman. They uh, worked on the docks. Bring, they would bring fish in <clears throat> and uh, fillet the fish for the market. And um, he worked with a guy that every day at lunch, the guy would go cop. He would get his heroin. He would shoot it up in his car. And then he'd go back to work. And I was like, he'd go back to work? And you're like, yep, he worked every day. Like every day he shot up and every day he worked. Like, yeah. He was never late. Nope. Just did his work. Like, right. Wow. Well, I didn't think you could do that. I thought you did heroin. The next thing you know, you'd just be on the floor in a fetal position in your own urine and you just would fall apart and die. Right. Yeah, there's this idea that people sometimes refer to as pharmacological determinism, that a certain drug has to do a certain thing. So alcohol has to sedate and disinhibit you. Heroin has to addict you and make you a slave to it and kill you. Cocaine has to be a euphoric thing that's done at parties that's also very addictive. PCP has to make you strip nude and run around um, fighting cops and fighting cops and yeah. punching holes and wooden fences. Um, <laughs> but when you look at this, you know, anthropologists have looked at certain drugs that are used cross-culturally, like alcohol. And what you find is this whole idea of pharmacological determinism is fundamentally flawed. Drugs behave differently in different cultures, depending on the set and setting of the user. And so you find all sorts of instances that are major exceptions to these rules that we've set up for these various drugs. For example, PCP, which is arguably one of the most ubiquitously maligned drugs in the world. I mean, no one can imagine that PCP is medicinal, but even to this day, PCP is in Schedule 2, not Schedule 1, like cannabis and LSD Schedule 2. It can still be prescribed, actually, and that's because it had a history of medicinal use. There was even PCP psychotherapy in the UK in the, in the 50s. So... This is uh, something that most people wouldn't believe, but to those patients that were taking it then, there was none of this cultural association with PCP being a drug that causes psychosis or makes you strip nude. It was simply another tool for a psychiatrist to use and help people release repressed memories or traumas that they were afraid to talk about when sober. Mm. Well, we're seeing that now with MDMA, right? I mean, and also ketamine. Ketamine use, being used as an, an actual tool for psychotherapy, particularly for people with depression, it's having really good results. My uh, my friend, <clears throat> excuse me, Neil Brennan, uh, who's a hilarious comedian, he's had struggles with depression. He had, he got great relief 
from uh, from taking ketamine. Right. And what I think is really interesting is, you know, this is often packaged as a sort of psychedelic renaissance, but I think in a larger context, it's a drug-facilitated psychotherapy renaissance because this was not just limited to psychedelics. People did something called narcoanalysis where they would give people um, sedatives like propofol, the drug that killed Michael Jackson, or um, various barbiturates or various other drugs, and the relaxing effect would allow people to talk more openly to a therapist, and it was considered very effective. Now this idea of a, a psychiatrist injecting you with a drug in order to help you talk about your problems is it's unheard of. I don't think anyone does it anymore, but it used to be very common, and I think a return to that is going to be really beneficial. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the right drugs with the right cases and the right people, and I think we've got to get past these schedules. That when you have things like marijuana and psilocybin and, and especially DMT, which your own body produces, is a Schedule One drug in the famous Terrence McKenna line we're all holding, you know, with, when it comes to DMT, it's just stupid. It's just it's stupid that these things are Schedule One. When you're saying there's no medical benefit whatsoever or medical application for cannabis, it's fucking crazy. When something, I mean, you want to have something that really actively promotes a distrust in law enforcement, the scheduling of drugs is one of the best ones. Because when you look at something like marijuana and you see that that's a Schedule One drug, that that that's infuriating to people that gain huge benefits from cannabis. I mean, people that have going through chemotherapy, people that have, you know, uh, interocular pressure from glaucoma. I mean, you can go down the list over and over and over again. Kids that have epilepsy. There's so many people that have had great benefit, for, particularly from edible cannabis, from people that have seizures. I mean, you could keep going on and on and on. It's just, it's an amazing plant. And to have that demonized because of some ridiculous propaganda from the 1930s that still somehow or another clung on in 2018. We think about all the information we have now with the internet and the fact that cannabis is still Schedule 1. You have assholes like Jeff Sessions still saying things like good people don't smoke marijuana. Like This is crazy talk. It's crazy, but keep in mind, it was just about a, a hundred years ago that alcohol was prohibited in the United States, and it took 13 years to reverse that, and that was alcohol. There's no drug more integrated into our culture than alcohol, and that took 13 years to reverse. Wow. What was that like back then? That must have been madness when alcohol was illegal, when the cops would come in and jackbooted thugs would knock over gin mills and bust open kegs of whiskey and spill it all out. Like, what the fuck was that like? It was, it was disastrous, but I think what's interesting about that is it was a worthwhile experiment. To give them the benefit of the doubt, it was worthwhile to see, because on some sense, you could say that prohibition has a certain logic to it. You could say drugs cause problems, so if we just make all the drugs illegal, then maybe those problems will disappear. Mm. But it didn't work. The experiment failed, and... There's nothing wrong with a failed experiment, but it's a problem if you keep repeating it over and over and over again for 100 years looking for a different result. Right. And then go to other drugs and go, well, this one. Let's try this one. Let's make this one illegal. And it's a terrible PR situation for the police as well. If I were a police officer, I would be the biggest opponent of the war on drugs in, of anyone in the government. Because when you think about why does the average person in New York City love a firefighter? They love firefighters, but they hate cops. Why is that? 
It's because of the drug war, because a firefighter isn't going to hurt you for something that wasn't really a crime to begin with, for some kind of victimless crime. A firefighter is just there to help you, to save you if you're in trouble. And the same would be true of police officers if it weren't for the drug war, ideally. There's a little more complexity to it. Sure. There's certainly more complexity when it comes to shootings and things along those lines. But I mean, the stop and frisk. I read something about stop and frisk in New York when they had when they had that instituted. That most of it was drugs. Most of it was like catching people with marijuana. Yeah, which is just fucking insane. You just stop. Hey, you look like you might be streetwise. Get over here. And that's the way these laws have functioned from the very beginning. I mean, if you look at drug law in the UK, it tends to be very black and white. Something is legal or illegal if it's legal it can be sold in stores because it's legal if it's illegal it can't be sold anywhere in the u.s they've instead created this nebulous far-reaching gray area where there's all sorts of things that are maybe illegal kind of illegal do it but don't get caught and uh and it's created an ability for the government to selectively prosecute people whenever they want if they want Mm, yeah well that seems to be lessening. I mean, when you have someone like Jeff Sessions in office, it's very disturbing. But then Trump says things like he's very strong on states' rights to, you know, pass marijuana laws and things along those lines. You, you know, look, you're very incredulous. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I suppose I am a bit incredulous when it comes to Trump doing anything good. But uh, I but- think if you told him that people love him more if he did things good. He would do things good. That's probably true. I think if someone that he trusted said it, yeah. I think that's his. Mo- I think we got to get somebody in deep. We got to get a mole in there. Got to get somebody who's good at back rubs. Get gets Ivanka on the podcast and <laughs> get her high. I don't think that'll help. <laughs> I doubt it'll help. I mean, I just don't. I don't know what is the thing that'll help. Is also the separation between the drug users and the policymakers. Yes. And and one thing that I am certain will help, and it's sort of tragic that this is the case, but it's capitalism. It's the corporatization of these drugs. Yes. Because with cannabis, um, you know, when it was hippies and the counterculture having, you know, marches down the streets of New York holding up 420 signs, it doesn't, I suppose, have all that much clout in the eyes of lawmakers. But when you have some guy from Yale Business School who's never smoked weed, who says, you know, this is a serious business opportunity. We're going to make it big and gets investors, invests millions and millions of dollars into it, hires lobbyists, plays the game like a capitalist. Then the laws do change. And I wish that weren't the case, but it is. And it's tragic for the people that did fight and did go to prison and did sacrifice that then these these business school guys come along and reap all of the benefits, but that's the way it works. Yeah, that is the way it works, and that's okay. I mean, it's just a weird path. It's a weird path, but as long as we can get to legalization, I'm, I'm 100% for that path. I just think that might be the only way. In this weird country, this country is so enamored with money. I mean, we're, we're so enamored with money and profits, and even for dying people, even old people, like Warren Buffett, invested shit tons of money in warehouses to sell to to grow cannabis in Colorado when the laws were passed. I mean, that guy's 150,000 years old. He's worth billions of dollars and he's like, "Who gives a shit? I'm making more money now and more and more and more." I mean, even when they're really old, they're they're massively motivated by profit. Yes. 
And I think the same will be true for psychedelics and will probably be true for all of these things because you need to have lobbyists. Yeah. And you need to have this sort of typical white-collar support to push things forward. Mm, I agree. I, just, I don't see any other way around it right now. I mean, the, the, the real hope is that cannabis, not that it will get rid of capitalism, but that we'll figure out it's hard to wear those things with glasses on, right? Yes. They, they, Ari's talking about it. The glasses dig in your head. Um, <clears throat> that cannabis will, the, not just cannabis, but cannabis will open the door to all these different substances that will allow people to, have a, to gain a greater perspective. This is the ultimate goal, in my opinion, is to give people the opportunity to step outside the momentum of their lives and look at things with fresh eyes and make clear decisions. This is a, one of the best things that I think that drugs provide, is that these psychedelic drugs in particular provide an escape from the momentum of this life that you've created or that you've found yourself a part of. It's very difficult for people to stop behavior patterns, to stop and to just look at themselves objectively and sort of rethink, regroup, and reassess. And this is one of the best things about cannabis and about psilocybin and a lot of these other psychedelic drugs is that it, it gives you this newfound perspective that allows you to reconsider things. Yes, absolutely. And I think with, you know, ketamine and the treatment of depression, it's a, a similar idea because depressed people become used to these very ingrained patterns of thinking and anything that can break you out of that, that can shake it up for a minute and maybe give you a different perspective, I think is inherently therapeutic. Yeah, I think so as well. And I think I'm hoping that what I see, and this is what I believe I see, is that we're changing our perceptions of it. I had a conversation <clears throat> with a friend of mine the other day about marijuana where uh, we were talking about um, how you used to hide whether or not you did it from certain people. And now that group of people that you have to hide it from is smaller and smaller. And that it seems like everyone casually smokes marijuana now in, in our circles. There's so many people that do. There's a few that don't, sober people and whatever. But it's way more common, whereas 10, 15 years ago, this was something you hid. If you had a good job, if you had a family, this is not something you wanted people to know about. And what I think is really interesting is that in and of itself changes the nature of the cannabis experience. So I think if somebody uses cannabis in a culture that supports it, that approves of it, their experience will be better by virtue of that fact. Right. So there's a certain shame that a lot of people feel when using any drug. I, for whatever crazy reason, feel it a little bit with cannabis. It's, you know, a little, just a hair of, I should be, you know, I should be studying, I should be reading, <laughs> I should be, you know, more focused. This is a little hedonistic. It's a little comfort oriented. I yeah. should be working harder. But um, that's, I think, just the vestiges of this propaganda that I've been fed or something like that. Or maybe it's true. But I understand from one perspective why the cannabis culture drums the benefits of cannabis so hard, you know, that it cures all disease, that it's good for you, that it cures cancer, all this stuff. Because if you have that in your mind, um, at the very least, it's going to reduce that sort of internal shame that you might feel and makes the entire experience healthier and more beneficial. Because we do construct these limitations. We construct these experiences to some extent. So if you decide that cannabis is a dissociative drug that's hedonistic and comfort-oriented and will 
take you away from your responsibilities, then that's what it will become. But if you decide, like Terrence McKenna did, that it's an intellectual catalyst, that it will facilitate your ability to read and learn and think and write, then it will become that as well. Yeah, it's it's a weird one, right? Because people that are people that take it that are prone to paranoia or that are dealing with like some difficult issues in their life right now that they're perhaps trying to avoid it becomes an uncomfortable experience whereas people that are happy and having a good time and in a good place the marijuana will sort of enhance that it'll give you this loving warm feeling of of comfort and of like sort of acceptance of your existence and it's going to be okay right but I think even the paranoia is like a, a sort of a sort of um, meme, you could say, a sort of vestige of this propaganda that makes people afraid in the same idea, vein as the bad trip. I think mm. the, the concept of a bad trip is a very damaging concept because, and I know from personal experience, I never really used psychedelics in high school with the exception of salvia um, because I was terrified of a bad trip. I talk to friends who'd describe bad trips and they'd say, oh, it's a, it's a bad, it's a bad trip. It's really bad. It's scary. And I would think, oh, that's terrible. I could, I would never want a bad trip. I'm never going to touch these things because a bad trip would be too much for me to tolerate. And then I started using psychedelics and I realized there's no such thing as a bad trip any more than there's a bad meal or a bad relationship or a bad day. I mean, having an occasional bad thing in life doesn't stop you from doing things like eating or having relationships or living typically. So what do you mean by there's, are you saying there's no such thing as a bad trip? Are yes. you saying there's no such thing as a bad meal? I'm saying that there is such thing as a bad meal, but okay. but it wouldn't prevent you from tripping. And I think that even the bad, <laughs> or wouldn't prevent you from eating, eating rather. Right. Sorry about that. But, uh, but I think even these bad trips, although they can be difficult, are beneficial in our learning experience in the same way that a bad meal could be. You'd learn not to go to that restaurant. Or maybe I, you'd learn something about what makes you sick or what to be careful of in the future. You know, if you are approaching life from a non-fearful perspective where your intention is to learn, then you can extract benefit from almost any experience. And these difficult psychedelic experiences, I genuinely believe, and this is what is maybe the hardest thing to communicate about psychedelics, is that it's the difficult ones that are often the best. Those are the ones that really teach you something. And when you're trying to talk about psychedelics with people who've never used them, it's not a great selling point to say, oh, you know, the best thing that can happen is you're going to think you're going to die. <laughs> but that is arguably the best thing that can happen is yeah. to think that you're going to die because that's a confrontation with the overarching fear, the fear that generates all other fears. And if you conquer that fear, then your life will almost certainly improve. Well, what is one thing that's sort of genuine, genuinely universally accepted as a beneficial experience is a near-death experience, sort of universally accepted as a transformative moment in people's lives. Like I had this near-death experience and I realized, wow, I got to get my shit together. After that heart attack, I realized that life is a gift and I changed the way I think about things and I started calling people that I loved and telling them that I loved them. This is the same, you can get a near-death experience from cannabis, you just don't ever die. <laughs> but you really do. I mean, it's the death of so many perceptions and so many things about your life, especially from edible cannabis, which I think is probably one of the least understood and most potent things that people are consuming on a daily basis. I, I can't tell you how many times I've given someone edible marijuana and they're fucking convinced that it's been laced with something awful and that they're going to die. But then afterwards they come out of it and they're like, oh, I 
just, uh, I got some work to do. <laughs> <laughs> the only way I would disagree with you is people that are prone to psychotic breaks. Yes. People, yeah, because that there there is an absolute genuine connection between people who have a slippery hold on reality and some experiences with psychedelics that lead them down a bad road. That's true. Um, it can it's a stressor, and like all stressors, it can precipitate a psychotic break. Uh, they've done pretty large-scale epidemiological analyses of psychedelic drug users versus the non-psychedelic drug using population, and the incidence of mental illness isn't any higher. So I don't think that you can argue that psychedelics cause mental illness, but you can, and in some measures, it seems to actually reduce it in terms of things like alcoholism, substance abuse disorders. But... Um, but it can be a stressor that would precipitate such an episode in a susceptible individual. And I had a very traumatic and formative experience myself where my best friend had a psychotic break while I was with him tripping. So I've seen this firsthand. I, I know exactly what it looks like. Yeah, I've had friends have real bad experiences, too, where they're screaming and yelling and then disassociative and then afterwards become very strange and have a, a really hard time with reality for a bit. Yeah. I've never seen someone have a complete psychotic break This from was it. that. He never recovered. Never. He never recovered. He was my best friend at the time, and he never recovered. So he was fine before the psychedelics? Yes. Jesus Christ. But again, you know, it's and that happened early. And he's, so now he's still fucked? Yes. Damn. But again, you know, I, I typically don't tell that story in public because it's it could be misinterpreted as a scare story you know i don't it's impossible to prove the counterfactual would it have happened without psychedelics almost certainly i can't say all i know is that he took a very high dose of a a, a psilocin ester and um had this episode he was hospitalized and he was not the same afterwards so i'm aware that this is a something to, that happens but it also typically happens in the early 20s late teens the same time that people typically have psychotic breaks and develop schizophrenia yeah the instances of schizophrenia in people who use cannabis are uh, cannabis in particular but i don't know about other psychedelics but i would imagine they're very similar they're exactly the same as the incidences of schizophrenia in non-using populations it's like one percent one percent across the board seem to have issues with schizophrenia and the the real question is how many of those people could i mean is it avoidable like if your friend had never done that and instead had you know become a marathon runner or something and you know found some other outlets for his energy would he have never gone down that road we it's, don't know it's impossible yeah to it's say. impossible to say i think it's very important to talk about that though and with further research, perhaps we could isolate genes, you know, like they have for CTE. Now they have, um, they can do an analysis of your genes and then determine whether or not something like football would be a dangerous path for you because you have a, a higher probability of developing CTE. It would be wonderful if they figured out a way to do that with psilocybin or with cannabis or with anything else and be able to recognize the potential links to psychotic breaks and to, you know, a host of different mental disorders that could possibly be triggered by high doses. Yes. I mean, this is one of so many things that needs to be done. And that's, you know, everyone's very excited about all this clinical research that's happening right now. I'm excited about it as well. But on one level, it 
is very politically oriented research. You know, the the things that they're looking at have actually typically been done before, not all of it, but the aim is to firmly establish these things that have been known for a long time, psilocybin occasions mystical type experience or MDMA is useful for treating PTSD or psilocybin has an anti-addictive effect. These are things that people have known for a little while, but now it's about proving it. But I'm really looking forward to getting deeper into these serious questions about, you know, exactly how these drugs interact with various subtypes of serotonin receptors, because I think that they're going to be very important tools for understanding consciousness as a whole. Yeah, it would also be interesting knowing how they react to different diets. You know, when people are, uh, you know, when you're eating certain types of foods that are bad for your body, I would really be curious to see what kind of effect that has. I mean, when, when you have real large-scale research that goes over really important variables in terms of like human health and then you add in these different substances whether it's psilocybin or cannabis or whatever it is it's it's going to be interesting to see how the body reacts to these various perturbances these various changes of your state yeah and that's you know traditionally in a lot of these indigenous groups the diet plays a big role in the way that the drug is administered. And I think we're slowly rediscovering a lot of things that have been known for tens, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of years in some of these indigenous groups. Have you had a chance to see any of my, any of my new show? By any no, chance? no, oh. I haven't. Oh, you, I think you'd like it. I'm sure I'd like it. I like yeah. your old show. Yeah, <laughs> this is. I think it's a lot better than the old yeah? show. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. But I, you know, I had the opportunity to look at the way salvia is used in the mountains of Oaxaca and, you know, Native American peyote use and all these different things. And, yeah, there, there's so much to be learned from all of these traditions that are not reflected in the current clinical climate because they can't be. But I think that that's going to be a part of it is slowly integrating these other alkaloids that are present in the plants to see what role they play in the same way that, you know, the initial medicalization of cannabis was Marinol, which is just THC and sesame oil. But now there's increased understanding of the way these accessory cannabinoids modulate the THC experience or whether THC is even the primary therapeutic agent for certain disorders. And I imagine the same thing will be true for peyote and for the iboga alkaloids and probably even for some of the chemicals found in mushrooms. So when you're doing this show, have you had any problems? Have you had any uh, pushback against what you're doing or any, any issues with it being on vice? I've had an enormous amount of freedom. You know, ultimately, I have very, very little to complain about when it comes to censorship. There was um, it, it, the way the show got started, the actual TV show is sort of an interesting story where they were starting up Viceland and a producer who's now gone uh, gave me this deck of drug stories they were going to do. And they're all kind of terrible scare stories like the new drug, Bromo Dragonfly. It's killing teens. A new drug. Bromo Dragonfly. Yeah, is Bromo. that real? Yeah, yeah. What is that? It's a really fascinating compound developed by this chemist, David E. Nichols, who um, found that it, that these conformationally constrained benzofuran uh, amphetamine derivatives are like very high potency DOB derivatives. Anyway, it's just a, it's a super potent psychedelic amphetamine that has a cool tricyclic structure. Huh. 
and it looks like a dragonfly. The well, molecule looks like a dragonfly, kind of. And it's got a very high... Yes, or... it's super, super potent and very, very long-lasting. So it, it lent itself to scare stories. Um, you know, people, it's a potent vasoconstrictor, so people would take very high doses of it, and occasionally they would have to amputate a, oh, a finger or something like that. But again, you know, this isn't because the drug is bad, it's because people used it irresponsibly, and this is something that people have so much difficulty understanding. We're so eager to blame drugs for all of our problems. Drugs have never hurt anyone. They're just inanimate constellations of carbon and hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen. They don't jump out of their bags and vials and attack your serotonin or receptors or dopamine transporter or anything like that. So this is just a, a weird pattern that we've done repeatedly over time. And I, I don't know if you read the new Michael Pollan book. I know he was on the yes, podcast. I'm in it right now. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, it uh, is great. But um, one thing that I thought was interesting about it um, is that he put a lot of the emphasis on the prohibition of psychedelics on Leary. And Leary almost certainly played a role, but I think it's slightly ironic that he's a journalist and didn't really go that deep into the role that journalists played in all of this, which was humongous. You know, journalists are sculptors of public opinion, and it became the standard way of reporting on any of these things to say that they're bad, to sensationalize it, and to not have any consideration for what that would do. Because any time a journalist writes some scare story, they can really mess with drug policy in a serious way. It might seem like nothing, like, oh, there's a bunch of people in Brooklyn and they overdosed on some obscure synthetic cannabinoid, AMB Fubinica. Who cares about AMB Fubinica? No big deal. I'll say that it turns people into zombies. And if it gets thrown into Schedule 1, who cares? Not a big deal. Well, that's a very short-sighted way of thinking about all of this, because that's exactly what happened with psychedelics. And then we're not learning from the mistakes of the past that just because something it's fun to sensationalize and talk about how dangerous it is at this moment doesn't mean that 10 years from now we're going to recognize that it has serious therapeutic potential and we made a big mistake outlawing it. And I think a lot of that also comes from this sort of us versus them mentality that people have where it's cannabis is good, synthetic cannabinoids are bad. Well, synthetic cannabinoids don't have to be bad for cannabis to be good. Cannabis can be good without something else being bad to counterbalance it. You don't need to hate something to justify your love of cannabis. And this whole hatred of synthetic cannabinoids, I think, is totally misdirected because these are products of prohibition that most people wouldn't even want to use in the first place. And when they do use them, they don't know what they're taking. They don't know what dose they're consuming. And so, of course, they're having bad experiences. That would happen with almost any drug, caffeine included, if people just consumed enormous unmeasured doses without having any idea what they were getting into. And so they're thrown into Schedule 1. Well, what happens if 30 years from now, once the therapeutic potential of cannabinoids is being really seriously explored, we find out that that AMB Fubinica that everyone was saying turned homeless people into zombies in Brooklyn in 2017 turns out to activate a certain subtype of the CB1 receptor that's especially useful for Parkinson's disease or something like that. Mm. Then we're going to regret having done that. So I think people have to be very careful. Anytime you say anything negative about a drug, you have to be very, very careful because the implications can be enormous. I think that the best stance in all of this is to not speak ill of drugs, of any <laughs> drug. 
Give the drugs Spoken a break. Spoken like a true drug enthusiast. <laughs> but isn't that a problem also with just what journalism is? It's like asking a comedian to talk about something but not make fun of it. It's what their job in, in a certain sense is to get people excited about things. And I don't know whether you'd say the lazy way out or the the common approach is to say something that scares people. I mean, that's that's what clickbait is mostly about, either outrage or fear. That's true. But there's a lot of richness in truth. I, I agree, but it's hard to sell. It's hard to sell that I don't that think it's richness. even hard to sell. I think that people are lazy, you know. Right. There's this idea that a lot of people have that you know, journalism is organized by some malevolent Rupert Murdoch type puppeteer who's telling everyone to you go off and you say that cannabis causes car accidents right. and you go off and you say this evil thing about this and say that alcohol is good. Did you see when uh, Alex Jones was on my podcast and got high with me? We got, uh, we got him drunk that. and high. And when it came up in his trial for his uh, divorce, uh, he said that George Soros puts uh, he he tests marijuana every year to see uh, how much George Soros is influencing the levels of THC. <laughs> <laughs> that was his excuse. But people love these ideas. They yes. love the ideas of the puppeteer, yes. the malevolent puppeteer, because it denies individual agency. But the reality, and I say this as a journalist who's worked at many different publications, not just Vice, is, and this is a, a difficult reality to swallow, is that people are free to say whatever they want most of the time. Most and of the time. that journalists choose to report on things this way. Yeah, that is true. But it's also true that they, like, I've been a part of stories that where I've talked to the author of it, and they said, well, this was manipulated by the editor. The editor manipulated the title, the change... Well, that's but, a great excuse yeah. from the perspective but, of the writer. But it's true. Like the, uh, the uh, Rolling Stone did an article about me, and they called me a psychedelic warrior. And I, I said to the guy who wrote the what the fuck is that? I was laughing, and he goes, dude, I did not write that. Yeah. I the mean, editor gets a hold of it, tries to make it more salacious. It becomes something that's more... It's more likely for people to buy or click. Right. Especially with headlines. That is yes. that is true. And the real problem is that this sort of outrage culture and comment culture that has emerged provides no incentive for truth. Because suppose um, someone were to write an article about this conversation we're having right now, and it could say, Hamilton Morris says Kratom should be illegal or something like that, then that will get so much more engagement because then right. you'll have all these people saying, fuck Hamilton, of he, course. He's, a, he's a traitor, how dare he say that it should be illegal that it didn't watch it. And then you'll have other people arguing with those people saying, well, listen to the interview. Hey, hey, he actually never said anything about that. Mm. Listen carefully to what he was saying. And then you create this whole engagement, a bigger engagement for doing the wrong thing than you'd get for doing the right thing. True, but the initial statement is much stickier. The initial statement of Hamilton Morris is a bad guy because he thinks Kratom should be illegal or Kratom should be illegal. That is what more people are going to pay attention to. Far less people read the retraction than read the initial. Of course. This is one of the, the more insidious things about printing things that are patently untrue purposely. That people do do things that are untrue with the caveat that they could just print a retraction that maybe 30% of the people that read the original article are going to read. The, the initial imprint is what's going to stick with people. Even if you – someone calls you a rapist, okay, and then it turns out that the person who called you a rapist was lying. The people who heard you were a rapist first, they still have that in their head. Oh, he's a rapist. Yeah, I no heard retraction. he's a rapist. Right. It's just – it's very difficult to get slippery ideas out of people's heads. So if somebody – write some article saying that you're against the legalization of certain drugs and they they start looking at you as being compromised it's 
the influence that people have today can't be understated because the reach is so powerful. The reach of any article, any video, any it's it's so significantly greater than any other sort of distribution of information in the history of human beings. The, the potential for it impacting large groups of people is so huge now. Yes. And this is the result of that is also that the viewers have a lot of power. And I think that in some sense, they don't quite recognize the nature of that power. It's like voting with your dollar. If you spend all of your time commenting hatefully on things you don't like, you are actively encouraging the production of more of that thing that you don't like. Right. If you like something, you need to engage with what you approve of more because every time you engage with something you dislike, advertisements are sold and it has been incentivized to do that bad thing. And that's a really sticky thing when we have this culture where everyone loves to out show their outrage and virtue mm -hmm. signal and show that they're on the right side and all this stuff constantly to say, hey, step back. You're just feeding the problem. Yeah. I think there's also a problem with a lot of what people are doing during the day is something they don't want to do. A lot of what people are doing is some job that they don't enjoy, and during that job, they have freedom to go online. And in this state of feeling like shit about whatever they're doing, they enjoy complaining about stuff. And so they'll read things and type things and get engaged in things, and there's some sort of a sport to getting pissed off about stuff. Instead of just... Spending your time doing things you actually enjoy. It seems so simple. It sounds like a, a simple solution. But if you could figure out a way to actively ignore things that are going to piss you off and seek out things that are going to excite you and intrigue you, you're going to be a healthier, happier person. And isn't that, isn't that ultimately what everybody wants? I want to be happier. Don't you want to be happier? Of course. But why do we seek out shit that pisses us off? Because it becomes a sort of addiction. It's, yes. it's drug-like in and of itself. I mean, mm. I see it. These arguments. These people are frittering away their finite yeah. time on Earth. Mm -hmm. Engaged in these endless comment battles that no one reads. And, uh, and it's a very dark reality, but it is also something that's driving the current culture of journalism that where truth doesn't matter as much. All that matters is engagement. Right. Right. It's just clicks. It's just clicks and money. It's interesting that you were saying something about drugs being inanimate objects and drugs don't actually kill people. It's so funny how drug enthusiasts parallel gun enthusiasts yes. with their arguments. It's really the same freedom argument. And it's, it's really, and I'm in an interesting perspective because I live in New York. I'm like a whatever, just a, a nerdy guy that doesn't... Let me guess. You live in Williamsburg. I do. Ah! <laughs> yes. Yeah. Big surprise. Well, that's where the Success. office that I work. I, I live close to the office that I work at. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, I have no interest in guns. I'm not. So it's really easy for me to say, well, look, there was this uh, this shooting, and all these people died, right. and uh, and this other guy got shot, and gee, these things are really causing a lot of problems. Let's get rid of them because it doesn't impact me. And that's where you have to be the most careful, because that the worst thing you can possibly do is make judgments about how other people should conduct their lives based on your own preferences, which people do all the time. So you hear someone say, well, I don't like cannabis. I don't like cannabis. I don't smoke it. Why should it be legal? Because people go to prison for it because right. it ruins people's lives who aren't your own. And you have to think about people that aren't you. And so it's very difficult when it comes to gun control issues because this, I'm faced with that exact same issue where it would be so easy for me to say, 
get rid of them all. It yeah. doesn't impact me. I don't like guns, but I don't want to fall into that same trap. Yeah, it is a trap. And it's it also sort of highlights how slippery life is in general, that these absolutes that we look for, these ones and zeros, they don't necessarily exist in a lot of subjects. You know, there's there's a lot of people that have done bad things that have also done great things. And that gets weird, too. You know, like just human beings in general, we're, we're not, we're, we're complex creatures, you know, and to just categorize something as negative or positive, it's, there's a lot of positive things that you could find with drugs. There's a lot of negative things you could find with drugs, too. And they mirror human behavior. There's a lot of positive and negatives in human behavior. Yes. And back to this, this journalistic issue and the coverage of drugs, I mean, one thing that worries me about the way cannabis and kratom and psychedelics are presented is that it's always couched in they're safe, they're therapeutic, they're spiritual, they're historical. But that isn't the point. Even if all those things are true and there's some debate, eventually someone will find a chink in that armor. Someone will die. Maybe they're not, haven't been used as long as you thought they were used. Maybe they don't always work therapeutically. So then what? Do you go back to prohibition? No. That's why I think you need to emphasize cognitive liberty. You need to emphasize people's right to explore these alternate states of consciousness, regardless of whether or not they're therapeutic or safe or traditional or spiritual. The point isn't that it's safe or any of these other things. The point is that if you want to live in a free society, you have to be allowed to take a certain amount of risk. Yeah, that's that's a big point. That's a very big point. And, and I think it really... It fits well with your description of the things that people are allowed to do that are legal, that are very dangerous, like race car driving, bungee jumping, all these things that we just allow them to do. We don't think twice about it. Using a parachute, all that crazy shit. We, we just openly, nobody's saying, hey, we should ban skydiving. There's no one saying that. But fucking a lot of people die skydiving, man. I mean, it's a, it's a fucking dangerous pursuit. We don't seem to care. We seem to care about drugs because we think that somehow or another, either our children or someone we know is going to be insidiously infected with these things. They're going to get into their lives and, and fuck them up. You know, and I think the real problem with that is education. That's the real problem with that. I was extremely fortunate in, in a weird way to see someone with a cocaine addiction when I was in high school. as uh, a good friend's cousin who got really fucked up on cocaine when he was a couple years older than me and I, I watched his life fall apart. And I remember thinking when I was little, like, wow, I don't want to touch that shit. Like cocaine's fucking terrible. And then from then on, I've never done cocaine, but it's because of that education because of, and I think real education is something, it's a fucking tough thing because you don't really just get it from knowing information. You have to see things. You have to talk to people. You have to experience things on your own. Like if someone talks about psychedelics, someone teaches about psychedelics, but they have no experience in actual psychedelic states personally, it's a very hollow conversation. It's like the, a certain amount of education has to be from real life experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is just Again, this, this idea of pharmacological determinism. Like, I had a friend that was very, very, very seriously addicted to cocaine and had the resources to do immense quantities every Ugh. single day. And he'd always say, well, you know, if I try heroin, I know it's all over for me. I know that will be the, the last straw, so I'm never touching that stuff. And he didn't. But my own perspective, you know, I've essentially tried 
everything. And if you really just think about these things, you can actually learn, for example, I've tried heroin once. I didn't think it was that interesting. Did you do it injecting? No. You I snorted it? I snorted it, yeah. Yeah, what was it like? It was boring, I think. Boring? Yeah. I don't think opiates are very interesting drugs mm. psychologically. You know, I, if I were to be totally honest, I think the cannabis is more euphoric and has so few side effects. You know, opioids cause horrible constipation. They cause all kinds of weird sweating problems. I don't think they're especially pleasant drugs, but mm. they're romanticized so much in our culture that people think that's it heroin the ultimate high well maybe it isn't maybe it's not even that great at all maybe it's garbage and it doesn't even matter and that's the same way i feel about snorted cocaine i don't even think it's a good drug it's not an issue of it's so addictive you've got to stay away from it because it's so damn good it's not good it's not even an enjoyable high it has short duration it you then feel bad almost immediately afterwards. It's a flawed substance. Same is true of alcohol, I think, as well. Alcohol is a crazily flawed molecule. It's terrible. No other drug that I can think of causes a hangover of that type where there's a toxic metabolite that poisons you the following day. Dr. Carl Hart was trying to explain to me what that is, and essentially he was saying that when you're getting a hangover, it's your body reacting to the addictive properties of alcohol, that you're getting addicted to alcohol almost, almost immediately, that your body is compensating for that. And then these, this, this, this hangover is not just you being dehydrated. It's also your body withdrawing from alcohol. I would... I am not familiar with any evidence for that. Do you know who he is, Dr. Carl Of course, Carl yeah. I actually yeah. tried to intern Brilliant. for him when I first moved to New Love York. Love that guy. Yeah, he, I have a lot of respect for him. But I mean, there, there's a. I'd have to look at his source for that. You'd have to also look at the way I described it because I probably butchered it. Okay, but there's an, an alternate explanation that's even simpler, which is simply that alcohol is metabolized into a chemical acetaldehyde that's toxic. So, and with alcohol, it's a very, very weak drug by weight. You're consuming insane amounts in terms of the number of molecules. You're in consuming insane quantities of the drug. So all of this acetaldehyde accumulates in your body and it has a directly toxic effect. Is there a way to counteract that and mitigate the effects? Yes, there are proposed ways to do it. I haven't experimented with any of them myself because I don't really like alcohol that much to begin with. Isn't uh, glutathione, that's a... That's something that allows your body to process it more easily? It would have to be something that prevents this specific conversion. I'd, I don't know off mm. the top of my head. Okay. What about crocodile? You ever fuck with that stuff? Well, this is another perfect example. So you, you take a drug like crocodile, and it's, it sounds horrible. It's the internet's drug. Yeah. The, the fear drug. Yeah, people are... But behind every scare story, there's nothing. If Explain you, what that is. Okay. Deal. So there's a, a scare story that I believe it was in Moscow, somewhere in Russia, in, and this was hitting the news around 2004. No, 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 much later, 2010, something like that. I don't know. And um, and the idea was that this is the worst stuff. It's ultra addictive. You inject it, and then you lose a limb, and you have profound necrosis all around the injection site, and this is the worst drug, most addictive drug of all time. Well, the drug itself is called desomorphine, and it's been used medicinally. There's nothing especially addictive or dangerous at all about desomorphine. The problem is that people were injecting completely impure reaction mixtures that had all of the components from the synthesis that hadn't been removed, including phosphorus, which is immensely toxic. So you have people basically 
reporting on IV phosphorus toxicity as if it were a result of this drug when it's a completely separate issue. Uh, and this is what you see when you look at all of these things. It's never the drug. Any drug scare story, it's never the drug. You always have to look for the root cause because it's never the drug. There's never been a drug in history. And that is why if you look at the DEA's list of controlled substances, it's not dangerous drugs that are controlled. It's enjoyable drugs. Something like tetrodotoxin, the chemical in pufferfish, that's not a controlled substance. There's some regulations in terms of how much you can purchase, but it's not a controlled substance. Seguitoxin, the most potent known neurotoxin, it's not a controlled substance. Lead isn't a controlled substance. Mercury isn't a controlled substance. Mercuric chloride isn't a controlled substance. All of the deadly poisons, cyanide isn't a controlled substance. It's not about what's safe and what's dangerous. It's about what people like to use, what's enjoyable. What is the root of that? I think it's, you know, a puritanical idea that, that any sort of euphoria is bad. I right. mean, euphoria is listed as a side effect in some medications. We, <laughs> we assume that it's a, a bad thing to right feel good. Right there with good. diarrhea. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like euphoria, diarrhea. Yeah. Yeah, that is a strange thing. Like, that's gonna, it's going to cut back productivity and make you a lazy ne'er-do-well and just become a, a, a burden on society. That's, or, that's a common, common yeah. way of describing people who use drugs. Sure. And this fundamental idea that sobriety is good. Yes. You know, you look on Instagram, people post a selfie and say, six months sober, guys. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. And tons of congratulations because it's a virtue because you right. accomplish something. You're not yeah. using drugs. Yeah. Whereas in other cultures, that would not be the case. People would just say, oh, you've decided not to work with a, a certain medicine. That's an interesting choice, not an accomplishment necessarily. Who was it saying? Was it Kyle Kingsbury that was saying that how much he hates the term plant medicine, or was it Dennis? I think it was Kyle. Uh, you don't like the term plant medicine, do you? I don't. You well? Do you buy? There's a. It's a weird sort of pretentious. Yes, yes, I know. Well, people call ayahuasca the medicine, or yeah. things like that. Yeah, or toad medicine. medicine. I mean, I wouldn't. You don't hate it. I. A lot of these like more flowery terms like entheogen, I just don't use them myself, but I don't hate it. Well, you're, you know, I think people like you are very important and I'm a big fan. Uh, but I think one of the reasons why you're important is you are a cognoscente of real drugs. Like you, you understand what they actually do. You could explain them to the layman or you could debate them with someone who was a doctor perhaps that wanted to you know, to talk about the dangers of them. And you understand all the various aspects of it. And I think there's a tremendous amount of ignorance when it comes to drugs, drug consumption, what is a drug. I mean, how many times have you seen a person with a beer in their hand smoking a cigarette saying they don't do drugs? It is so fucking stupid, but it's, it's so common. There's this very, very, very common aspect of being a person, which is this desire to change your mental state. And we've done it throughout history with various substances. But uh, there's so much stigma attached to it. And, and one of the things I've been doing lately uh, on stage, I'll ask people, how many people get piss tested at work? It's fucking stunning. It's stunning. It's like more than 10% of the audience will raise their hand. Like one out of 10 people gets oh, their, yeah. their body tested to make sure that while they're not working there, they're not putting anything in their body that's prohibited. 
which is such a horrible invasion of privacy that, you know, that became so popular that in the 80s during one presidential election, all the candidates voluntarily had their urine tested to prove that they were sober. <laughs> I mean, this is like truly considered a virtue. And it's immensely invasive. I say this as someone who's analyzed my own urine in a laboratory before, and it's like a strange portal into your own life that you're yeah. showing to a stranger. Everything that you've consumed is then apparent there. Yeah. And it's incredibly, it's a huge invasion of privacy that we've just decided is acceptable. And you have to be very careful about these things. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, it's And, of course, the synthetic cannabinoid epidemic, if you want to call it that, I actually don't want to call it that because I hate even the idea of a drug epidemic, but the, the popularity of synthetic cannabinoids is largely driven by the fact that they didn't show up on these urine tests. So initially it was in the military, then it was people who were on parole or probation, people who were living hard lives, wanted to get high, couldn't get high. This was a way that they could do it. And so they've incentivized people that just wanted to smoke weed using completely untested synthetic cannabinoids instead as a direct result of these urine tests. <sighs> well, it's also just a complete misunderstanding when it comes to the actual effects and how long they last. You're, you're not even testing a person's conscious state. You're testing whether or not a person has altered their state of consciousness outside of their, their working time. You know, it's not like you show up and they could scan your hand and realize that you're high on marijuana right now. That's not what they're doing. What they're doing is they're, they're testing you for something that could linger in your body for weeks after the psychoactive effects have long since gone. Oh, yeah. Or even be the result of passive exposure. There was a great scientific article that came out a couple of years ago where they found that just passive exposure to cannabis smoke contaminates your hair with THC so that all these people who had hair tests who actually had not smoked cannabis, but it sounds like an excuse. I was just in the room. Someone right. else was doing it. Just being in contact with someone who'd smoked cannabis could then deposit THC in your hair and cause you to test positive. So these tests aren't even necessarily reliable. This is the same problem. There was a, a kind of trend a little while ago. I don't know if you saw about this, where people would uh, get their urine tested for different to quantify the levels of neurotransmitter metabolites in their urine. And this was supposed to be like a fingerprint of your mood. So they'd quantify the level of serotonin, dopamine, GABA, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then they'd say, oh, you're a little low on serotonin. You're pretty depressed, actually. You need to supplement with some 5-HTP or something like that. And it's a very reductive way of thinking about consciousness. But the main issue is that you're not testing in your brain. You're testing your urine. And a lot of these neurotransmitters are biosynthesized in the periphery. So just because you have these neurotransmitters in your urine doesn't mean they were ever in your brain. It doesn't say anything about anything. So it's just, it's so juvenile in a way. It's just such a... It's, it's such a piss-poor way of maintaining order, checking people's consciousness. and make, I mean, What you should do is judge people based on their productivity. If, if I have some guy and he shows up for work and he kicks ass every day, I'm like, dude, what's your secret? He's like, I get high. Get high before work. It's great. I feel good. Having a good time at work. Zippity-doo-dah, zippity-day. I'm putting everything in order. And it just feels good. Like, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, that's how it should be. We, we should be judged based on whether or not whatever we're doing is, uh, I mean, I guess the real caveat to that would be people that do speed. Oh. Yeah, I mean, you would get pretty productive for a short period of time doing speed. But I think the downside of that, there's so many people that are on Adderall today, right? Oh, what, yeah. what, are, what are your feelings on that? I think that... It's a very interesting issue because, 
it's amazing when you look at the history of all these things, how these issues repeat themselves over right. and over and over again. So it was a problem in the 50s, and it's a problem in the 60s, and it's a problem in the 70s. Now it's a problem now. It's always a problem that we're treating as if it were a new thing. But people have been using amphetamine-type stimulants for the better part of 100 years. And um, people will now, the kind of popular thing to say is, you know, didn't you know Adderall is one carbon atom away from meth? But here's the flip side. Meth is one carbon away from Adderall. So this whole idea that meth, again, back to pharmacological determinism, that meth is a drug that turns you into a toothless, insane, white trash uh, guy who's stabbing the walls with a cleaver looking for people that are hiding and whispering secret messages or something like that. Like, this is just a stereotype that we have created. Of course, there are people like that, but the reality is that these stimulants have an ambiguous potential for all sorts of things. Some people use low doses of methamphetamine. In fact, methamphetamine is Schedule II because to this day it can be and is prescribed as a treatment for ADHD in addition to amphetamine, which is Adderall. What do they call it when they prescribe it? Desoxin is the brand name for methamphetamine, <laughs> and uh, Adderall is the brand name for amphetamine. And, they're ve- wow. and I've tried both drugs, both amphetamine and methamphetamine, and they're very, very similar drugs. And that's not to say that either are good or bad. It's just a, a factual statement that if in a double-blind, placebo-controlled, or not even placebo-controlled, just a double-blind trial, I don't think that I could It could treat ADHD. Them. It could also help obese patients lose weight. Yeah. Did you know that um, there's a lot of people that think Trump is on diet pills? Oh, yeah, yeah, on a diethylpropion. Yeah, right. yeah, and that he used to be on one of the, one of the elements of fin, finfen, fenfen, fenfen. Oh, fenfluramine, maybe? Yeah, yeah. Fentermine? Well, there was a, uh, some journalist that even talked about the Dwayne. We saved this. We have it on a, a folder now. What would you say, Jamie? I've been hit up messages about that journalist. Though he might be compromised sketchy. or sketchy or something like that, yeah. too. So but, I don't know. But even if he were on diethylpropion or fenfluramine or fentermine or fenmetrazine or any of these substances, yeah. so what? You well, know, the question is, is his judgment compromised because he's— Hopped up on speed. His judgment seems compromised regardless. But is that why? No, probably not. Uh, But it could be why he gets so much shit done. I mean, remember when during the, you you just don't want to compliment him, and I understand that. No, 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 that's not why. It's, again, it's this idea, there's a certain exculpatory value that drugs have. People make the same arguments about Hitler. Like Hitler, he was just high on speed. That explains it. The Nazis, they were just high on speed. That explains it. But what value does it really have? Same thing with Anthony Bourdain. They'll say, oh, no drugs were found in his system post-mortem. So what? What if they had been? Then what? Well, the idea is that he might have been experiencing a fucked up state of mind because of some drug that made him make a poor choice and take his own life. But you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know why he did it. Is that what you're saying? It wouldn't explain anything really because you still wouldn't know his internal state. It would just be you're projecting an assumption. So what if there were a small amount of heroin in his blood at the time of his death? Then you would assume that he had relapsed, was so ashamed of his relapse that he then decided to kill himself. But the reality is we can't make those sorts of assessments. We don't know other people's internal states. We don't even know what these things do to other people. We don't, but we do know that some things like Abilify and some other SSRIs and even some uh, anti-anxiety medication have been strongly linked to suicidal thoughts in, in 
in fact, there are actually listed as some side effects for a lot of these drugs, yes, right? Yes. Don't you think that, I mean, I know correlation does not equal causation, but don't you think that that's worth considering and it's something to be discussed? It's worth considering, but I would be careful about assigning too much value to it, which is what people tend to do. The same thing with Columbine. They'll say, oh, he was on this right. or that antidepressant. That's why. Is it why? Does it really explain it? Because there's a hell of a lot of people that take those same drugs and don't kill all of their classmates. Right, right. For sure. For sure. Um, but it also could be a factor. And this is not something that I think we should avoid considering. I yep. think it should be discussed. Responsibly. I, yes, I agree with you. And, uh, but I think we're trying to look at things binary, right? We're looking at things in terms of like on or off, black or white, one or zero. And I, I just don't think drugs work that way. No. And I think you agree, yeah. The speed thing is curious to me because one of the side effects of these drugs is uh, impulsive, irrational behavior and uh, a, extreme confidence in oneself. Like yes. this is, this is uh, right, this is what we always think of people that are hopped up on speed, people that have uh, coke confidence. You know, coke confidence is a real phenomenon. When people do cocaine, they feel very confident about themselves and they, they, they say ridiculous shit to people. So the question is, is that really what's happening? If, they, if I gave Coke to you, would you start acting irrationally and feeling extremely confident in yourself? Or is it just accentuating a problem that already exists in the person's personality? Both, probably. Yeah. A combination of the two. But the other thing is, even if he has been using this stuff for decades, he's probably tolerant to it. And it's not, I don't think it would explain his behavior. Well, I think it's giving him energy. He's been like this for so long, yeah. though. This, I mean, this is a, a long history of this sort of behavior. Well, this was what the journalist had talked about, that he had been on this stuff for a long time and that there was a actual Dwayne Reed pharmacy in New York where he described where he got the prescription filled. People were doing the same thing with his finasteride as well, though, and I, I found that particularly obnoxious. Finasteride is Propecia. Propecia. So they were saying, yeah. oh, oh, he's on finasteride, and that explains you know, his affair, or that explains this because it does this or that to your libido. And again, it's like, I don't know, or not at all, or let's give him some credit for being a human being with free will that makes choices on his own that aren't entirely mediated by what pharmaceuticals he uses. Well, finasteride also has side effects of depression. And we went over this yesterday with my friend Ari, uh, who was really depressed at one point in time, and it coincided with his use of finasteride. Right. Yeah, yeah I've, I've seen, but it's not very common. It does occur, but it's mm. not common. Right. But for the person that does get those side effects, saying that it's not common doesn't really offer any comfort. No. No. It doesn't. <laughs> like, oh, well, I, I'm one of the lucky ones. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm one of the lucky ones who wants to jump off a bridge to get my hair to grow back. But, you know, the reason that I'm so opinionated about this particular issue is because you see it time and time again. It right. never stops. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with the Jeffrey McDonald murder case. No, I'm not. Super fascinating. You probably have read about it and forgotten about it. It was a big thing in maybe 1970, but he was this military doctor um, who's credentialed, the perfect man, did everything right, perfect family, everything beautiful. And then one night he goes to sleep and claims that is right after the Manson murders, claims that these hippies walk into the house saying, kill the pigs, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, acid is groovy, and then just brutally massacre his entire family. And Out of nowhere. Out of nowhere, yes. And, um, and it's a long and complicated story, but he went to prison. 
I don't think that he is guilty, but people had to find an explanation for what why. What do you mean you don't think he's guilty? I don't think he's guilty. He had no motive, and there were, and the investigation was botched. And so you think someone came into his house and did that? Yes. And he was accused of it. Ugh. Yes. But but because he had no motive, people had to construct a motive. They had to concoct a reason that this doctor would have murdered his entire family. And so what's a good reason? Oh, am- amphetamine. He'd been using this uh, amphetamine-containing diet pill. So that explains it all, right? Mm-hmm. But it doesn't. It's a terrible explanation. People use amphetamine all the time without killing their family. So I just want to be very careful about, you know, do these things play a role in human behavior? Of course they do. But do they determine human behavior? No. That's a very good point. There's a lot of factors. There's just, it's messy. Being a person is messy. It's very complicated. I mean, you're a different person at noon than you are at 7 p.m. Of course. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, it's just, it's so complicated. And the more limitations we put on research and the more stigma we put on the use of these things, the more murky these waters are going to be. Yeah. And I think people don't even appreciate the extent to which all these drugs have been made illegal. Of course, everyone's aware of cannabis, the Schedule One, LSD, psilocybin, MDMA. But the list is long. It's hundreds and hundreds of chemicals. And a lot of these chemicals are chemicals with no supporters. No one's fighting for them. There's a, a, a substance called 2CN, one of Shulgin's creations. They just threw it in Schedule One. No one uses it. If you scour the internet, I'd be surprised if you could find three reports of people using 2CN. Totally unheard of. But they just throw it in Schedule One because why the hell not? No one's going to stand up for it. That's the end of 2CN. But they miss a lot of shit too, right? Like they miss 5-methoxydimethyltryptamine. They miss that. No, that was made illegal in 2011. Right. But yeah. for 1970, when everything else got thrown into the mix, they made it illegal. I bought that shit. I used to be able to buy it online. Yeah, so did I. Yeah, it was crazy. You could yeah. buy a fucking jug of it then get the whole city high you yeah buy it online yeah because it was never popular so how do they make it illegal how do they how do they do that they don't need any reason they can simply say that it has abuse potential and make it illegal and if no one opposes it then it becomes illegal that's how this list has gotten so long you have all these people fighting for the legality of cannabis and these other substances that are known to have therapeutic potential but these other more obscure substances that are really only of concern to scientists who are very seriously disinclined to break the law for the sake of their research. Drug users don't care about breaking right. the law. Scientists are very unlikely because the whole purpose of science is to publish, and you can't publish if you committed a crime in the context of your research. So scientists are dramatically limited by the prohibition of these substances, and it's the obscure ones that end up actually making a big difference, not so much clinically, but in terms of actually understanding the mechanism of these substances, the structure-activity relationships, the neuropharmacology. Yeah, the, the, the stigma on psychedelic use and, and, and even studying them has led so many doctors or scientists, researchers, that would be inclined to want to do research on these particular things. They avoid them because it could be incredibly damaging to their careers. And it's bureaucratic. I mean, there was a a group at Columbia that was doing really fascinating research on the drug Ibogaine and Parkinson's disease. And I was speaking with the head of this study, and he was saying how obnoxious it was to have the government come and weigh his vial of Ibogaine every day and monitor his logs. And, you know, this guy is a really serious researcher. He's not going to, if he were to get high, he's not going to get high off this tiny supply of government-mandated 
or government-sanctioned ibogaine right. that was supplied to him. But uh, but they give these people a really hard time. They make them buy a very expensive safe. They do all this stuff that these are the last people to abuse the substances. It's And they are the ones that are hurt the most severely, except for, of course, the people that go to prison. They're the ones that are hurt the most severely. Yeah, it's a crazy thing to think that people are going to recreationally use ibogaine. That's that's one of the weirder ones. Oh, it's it's totally bizarre. Yeah. And um, and Ibogaine is a drug with so much potential. For those people that are aware of Ibogaine, it's typically only discussed as a drug that treats addiction to opioids, which is very, very important, especially now. But that's the tip of the iceberg with Ibogaine. It has one of the most complex pharmacologies of any drug I've ever studied. There's almost nothing it does not do. I mean, it's, you know, you have the alpha-3, beta-4 nicotinic acetylcholine receptor, which is also the target of Welbutrin and has a kind of smoking cessation, anti-addictive effect. Then you have really high affinity relative to the other receptors for the NMDA receptor. So it has a ketamine type effect and has a classical psychedelic effect at the 5-HT2A receptor. Then it's a dopamine reuptake inhibitor, serotonin reuptake inhibitor. It just goes on. And then it releases this protein, GDNF, which is considered one of the most important proteins in treatment of Parkinson's disease. It's one of the only things that is able to cause regrowth of dopaminergic neurons in people that have Parkinson's. So this is like really fascinating stuff that's just in schedule one. Scientists can't work with it. It's a tragedy. It is a tragedy. And it's also so effective. I know so many people that have gone to Mexico and gone to these clinics and done one Ibogaine session for 24 hours and come out of it a totally different person. Come out of it with a complete new perspective on even why they were using whatever they were using in the first place in a way that they didn't. Not only does it help eliminate the addictive properties and the connection that your body has to those substances, but it also allows you to re-examine why you went down that road in the first place. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, there, you know, there was a sort of pharmaceutical push to develop non-psychedelic derivatives of ibogaine that would retain the anti-addictive properties, which sounds like a good idea in theory. But so they created this drug called 18MC, and it wasn't psychedelic, but then it also lacked some of these uh, neurotrophic factor releasing properties of ibogaine. But really, the bottom line is that we shouldn't deny the fact that the psychedelic activity of these substances is therapeutic, psychotherapeutic in and of itself. You know, I had a friend who was severely, severely addicted to heroin, and he traveled to the Netherlands to take Ibogaine and, you know, took the drug, was going into the experience, and then started feeling this intense craving for heroin and, um, and started looking through his bags to see if he'd somehow put a little, had forgotten about a little bit of heroin that could just get him through the day. And then he, he goes into his bag and, and then finds a small bag of heroin and snorts it and then is like, I traveled all the way to the Netherlands to do this. This was, I'm a failure. I'm relapsing after all this money, all this work. I have no self-control. I'm a terrible, terrible person. Why can't I just stop and then realize that the whole thing was a hallucination? There was no heroin. He'd hallucinated his own relapse. Whoa. <laughs> wow. What was your experience with Ibogaine? I've never taken high doses. The most I've ever taken is 50 milligrams. of. What's the an effective dose? It really depends. Uh, there's a sort of move toward microdosing Ibogaine because it actually does have a, a cardiotoxic effect, especially at higher doses. So people are looking into ways of reducing that cardiotoxicity by using it at lower doses for longer periods of time. 
again, this is something that has to do with prohibition because in a this prohibition market, if you are addicted to heroin, you go to Mexico or you go to Canada and you go to an Ibogaine clinic, you need to get as much bang for your buck as quickly as possible. You're not going to stay there for two months of treatment because most people have lives and can't afford to do that. So what do you do? They give you what, what is called a flood dose. It's a massive dose, um, often a multi-gram dose of Ibogaine because it's just like a sledgehammer that knocks you down and allows you to get out of it. But is that the best way? That's the fastest way. That's the most appetizing way for someone that had to travel to do it. But is it the best? Probably not, because we know that at high doses, it has this potential to induce cardiac arrhythmias, and that can kill and has killed. So people are, yeah, now looking at lower doses over longer periods of time, which would be ideal if it were legal in the United States, I believe. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, it's a really interesting one to me. It's a, it's a really interesting one because it's got such a long history of use, and so many people have had these very good experiences with getting off of addictive drugs from it. Oh, and, yeah. And it's so relatively unknown as well. It's, it's, it's something that, you know, I talked to someone like you, and you, of course you know about it, but I, mean, I, I bet if we walked down the street and asked 100 people, I'd be shocked if one of them knew about it. Yeah. And, you know, Terrence McKenna would sometimes talk about psilocybin as an invention of mushrooms or as technology or as being synthetic. And uh, I don't really agree with that idea. An invention it, of mushrooms? Or he, he would sort of say, like, this is as synthetic as a Coca-Cola bottle. This is like alien technology. That's how mm. he would describe psilocybin. But in my opinion, it's, you know, it's a pretty simple derivative of tryptophan. You just decarboxylate, methylate the nitrogen twice, and then add this phosphate ester. But, but Ibogaine... That's a crazy molecule. That's like a three-dimensional thing that no medicinal chemist would have ever discovered. That, if there's, you know, not to sound mystical, but that strikes me as some sort of plant technology. I mean, it's an amazingly complicated structure. It's so complicated that it's almost impossible to synthesize. In fact, it can't be synthesized commercially. All the ibogaine that people use has to be extracted from plants because that's the only way to get it. Wow. Um, I first found out about it when uh, when Hunter S. Thompson accused Ed Muskie of being on of it during the <laughs> presidential uh, uh, race of, what was it, 1970 or whatever it was. Um, that was a hilarious moment. And a lot of people, I think, were introduced to what Ibogaine was by that when he said a Brazilian witch doctor had been flown in. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Of course, it doesn't even grow in brazil but. no it doesn't even make sense <laughs> well it's also it was hilarious when he was on the dick cavett show and they asked him about spreading those rumors and he's like well there was a rumor uh that uh he was doing this uh ibogaine and uh i know because i started the rumor uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> i just reported factually There's, there was a rumor oh, yeah man. i mean it's uh there's there's a, a lot of these drugs that get put into various categories, and Ibogaine is one of the very few that really isn't in any category in terms of, like, modern culture, like the way we discuss and consider these things. Oh, because it's very different structurally and pharmacologically. Yeah. But that, that Hunter S. Thompson story is really interesting because it's, it's obviously a very charming, funny story, and I'd have to know exactly when it happened relative to the scheduling of Ibogaine. But that might be an example of how what's a you know frivolous joke that most people enjoy told in the wrong climate can result in the loss of a chemical that could be 
it could save tens of thousands of lives and could be a treatment for Parkinson's disease. Mm. You know, this is the responsibility that journalists have. It's more responsibility than I think they'd like to have often. But that's the truth. You make a joke about Ibogaine, next thing you know, it's in Schedule 1. Maybe he made the joke afterwards, but if he didn't, you have to wonder. Because that was one of the first major mentions of Ibogaine in the popular press. And the same is true of, you know, there was a Rolling Stone scare article that came out a while ago, and it's the same deal, this drug 2CT7, and they do a whole story, oh, this teenager, he took too much, and this 2CT7, it can kill you with just a, you know, a little pile of powder or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then the drug is made Schedule 1. Shulgin worked on psychedelics. Alexander Shulgin, great medicinal chemist who spent his entire life studying psychedelics, considered this one of the six greatest creations of his entire career squashed by a single stupid story in Rolling Stone. That's how easily it happens. Now, was the story stupid? I mean, did it have any basis in fact? An editor at Rolling Stone told me that there were factual errors in it and there's something weird about it. But yes, people did die. Because yes, people die from using drugs occasionally. To deny that would be to lie. But that doesn't mean that they don't have therapeutic activity and it doesn't mean that they should be illegal. One of the ones that disturbs me the most is fentanyl. Um, fentanyl just I don't even understand why anybody would want to make that it seems to me that we have plenty of opiates as it is why make one that's a thousand times stronger than heroin yeah I've known four fentanyl chemists including the one that introduced fentanyl to the United States initially he died recently did he die from it no (laughs) died of old age it's killed so many people yeah Tom Petty David Bowie was Bowie one I'm not sure Prince yeah. Uh, I mean, there's quite a few great people that we've lost to this stuff. Yeah. It's really, it's unfortunate, but again, fentanyl is not the problem. The problem, problem is people taking it. The problem is people taking it, and the problem is lack of access to safer opioids and lack of education surrounding fentanyl, because it doesn't even really have desirable properties. You know, one thing that people always talk about the potency of fentanyl, but one thing that they don't often talk about is the duration. It's a very, very short duration opioid, which necessitates compulsive, constant redosing. If you're addicted to fentanyl, unless you're doing a transdermal patch or something like that, you typically can't make it through a single night without having to redose because the duration is so short. That's why it's always done in these prolonged um, release formulations, like a lollipop that you suck or a patch. But anyway, it's yeah, it's it's not a drug that's well suited to street use. It's too the therapeutic index is too narrow. Its duration is too short. It has a medical purpose that it works very well for. It shouldn't be used as a heroin replacement, but the economic reality is that you have to make heroin from opium. Opium has to come from a place where poppies are grown. That's a whole process whereas fentanyl can be made by one guy somewhere and the profit margin on the fentanyl is so much greater that there's an enormous economic incentive. And the first chemist, this guy that was sort of a friend of mine that died to do it, considered it a good thing to do. That's the complexity that you have to recognize. It's so easy to say that all these people are so bad, but often you don't know what's going to happen until it happens. His idea was that one of the major burdens of being addicted to heroin is that you can't afford it. It's really expensive. So by substituting this relatively inexpensive material, the price of heroin would go down. This financial burden associated with opioid addiction would be reduced. It would actually improve the quality of life of the users. And it could even be a more pure, potentially safer material if you look at certain literature. Of course, that's not what happened. 
and many people died, and he went to prison as a result of it. Did he really? Yes. Why did he go to prison for it? Because people died, and it was traced back to him. Wow. Yeah. So he wasn't doing this in any sanctioned... No, he was a clandestine chemist. His name was George Marquart. Weird guy. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. But anyway, you know, you just don't know. You don't know what's going to happen until it happens. You know, of course, the legendary story that heroin was introduced by Bayer as a non-addictive alternative to morphine. They probably did think that was the case at the beginning, but history has shown that that is not the case. That's one of the problems with introducing any drug to a large population. You simply don't know. It's, and it's also one of the things that I find most interesting in, and perhaps a silver lining in this whole synthetic cannabinoid narrative that's been playing out over the last decade is you could say, oh, it's terrible. People should just smoke cannabis. But we're learning so much about what cannabinoid receptor agonists can do that we would have never learned if it weren't for the widespread use of synthetic cannabinoids. I mean, just for instance, that it is possible for high-potency cannabinoid receptor agonists to kill you. That's a big one. We didn't know that until recently, that they can be addictive. We didn't know that. What are they using? Like, what is it? It's so, it's an impressively diverse array of chemicals. You know, it started out with a drug called CP55940, then it was CP, uh, uh, what did they call it, cannabis? bicyclohexanol now, and then JWH18, JWH73, JWH210, on and on and on and on. And then it just branched like a giant cannabinoid fractal in every imaginal, imaginable direction. And, uh, and a lot of these compounds, you know, they, they were patented by various pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer for therapeutic purposes. Again, this wasn't some malevolent chemist who was cackling and saying, ha ha ha, I figured out the most addictive thing possible. They were just looking to see what's legal, what looks pretty potent, and reasonably safe, okay, we'll make that, we'll sell it. And, uh, and I've spoken with the chemists that are actually were behind a lot of these operations. Again, not bad guys necessarily. They, they, you know, typically people don't want to hurt other people. You know, genuine villainous people are pretty rare in my experience. Most people believe that what they're doing has a justification that is good. And again, with the synthetic cannabinoid ideas, one is that although you won't hear this in the popular press, and it's rarely said, they can be very enjoyable. And it would be dishonest to say otherwise. Some of them are very euphoric and compare favorably to cannabis, and in certain measures might even be superior. That doesn't mean they're safer. It just means that there's something very desirable about them. And if you deny that, then you neglect to understand why people use them in the first place, which is that they make you feel good. So that's part of it. But then the other thing is the urine testing people wanting to be able to get high without breaking the law, low cost. I mean, there's a lot of motivations for doing this. And as it played out, people died, people became addicted, and random things that no one would have ever expected occurred. We, we learned, here's another silver lining. I'm sure you're familiar with cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. No, I'm not. You know, this, um, this bizarre pattern that certain people that smoke all day, every day, um, it started showing up in the medical literature about a decade ago. People smoke all day, every day, and they start getting very, very nauseous and start vomiting. And the only thing that can relieve the vomiting is a hot shower. Huh. So really weird. So all these people are showing up in emergency rooms when they like run out of hot water, um, saying like, I need some kind of, uh, I need some help or something. Like, I don't know what's going on. The condition resolves itself 
very rapidly as soon as you stop smoking cannabis. So it's, it's not hard to treat. You just can't smoke weed anymore. But no one knew what caused it and why it was happening now after thousands of years of human cannabis interaction. Why now for the first time in history? And the answer is that people are smoking more weed now than ever before. You know, the levels of THC ingestion with dabbing and high potency strains are just higher for some people. It's much higher than has ever been in the past. But, um, but then the question is, what is causing it? Is it the cannabis itself? Is it a fertilizer? Is it a pesticide? What is responsible for this? And it wasn't until people with using synthetic cannabinoids began to experience the same constellation of symptoms that they realized that this is an intrinsic property of certain cannabinoid receptor agonists. So that's something that you can learn from all of this, that it wasn't pesticides and it wasn't some kind of uh, fungus or something like that growing on the plant. But this is something that happens from prolonged high-dose use of cannabinoids. And there's all sorts of other lessons that can be learned. Is that an issue with uh, cannabis use, pesticides? Have you ever heard of people having real problems? Well, historically it was, certainly. You know, Paraquat pot, did you ever hear No, what's that? Paraquat was, um, you know, in one of many misguided attempts to prevent people from using drugs. They started spraying all of the cannabis that was grown in Mexico with this ultra-toxic um, herbicide called Paraquat. And this is a drug that induces Parkinson's disease when you're exposed to it, like really seriously nasty stuff, no joke. And so the idea was if we poison all of the cannabis and create this widespread fear that whatever you're smoking might contain Paraquat, maybe people will use it less. And luckily, Paraquat is, uh, doesn't have a lot of thermostability. It's sort of denatured by the heat of smoking. So it's argued that people were not actually exposed to it who smoked it. But still, this is a horrendous thing for the government to have done. They did the same thing during alcohol prohibition, by the way. They would poison alcohol. I mean, that's the extent. They'll poison people to prevent them from getting high. <sighs> but um, that's a reality. But, um, but now, in turn, you know, there's obviously a a move toward organic gardening, people using, you know, neem oil and things like that. So I wouldn't know. Oh, and there was, yeah, there was actually a big controversy in Colorado with a, a pesticide called myclobutanil, I believe, that was used and potentially could release cyanide when smoked. So, yes. Jesus. Yeah. Well, I would worry about that with large-scale production. Things become commercially viable, the point where someone like R.J. Reynolds gets into the mix and starts growing on enormous marijuana plantations. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a concern with all the food that we eat as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. What is interesting to you now? Like, is there anything that's coming up or some new thing that people aren't, might not be aware of that might be uh, fascinating to you? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in everything. You know, I, I love the history. I love... Um, you know, I did a piece in this last season of my TV show where I traced the history of psychedelic toad venom, of 5-MeO-DMT containing toad venom, because people have this idea that all psychedelics have been used for thousands of years, that every psychedelic has an ancient history. But yeah. when you look at the history of 5-MeO-DMT, there is no evidence, really, no convincing evidence that I'm aware of. Maybe you can point to a you know, ceramic toad. Is that evidence that people smoke toad venom? Not in my opinion. It might be some indication that maybe they did, but it's certainly not hard evidence. Even if there were a, a guy sitting on his back smoking a pipe, it wouldn't be hard evidence. Mm. But anyway, so there isn't convincing evidence as far as I'm concerned of ancient toad venom use. So then the question is, when did it start? Who was the first person to do this? And I, I love these little 
historical investigations to get to the bottom. Who is the first person to synthesize this drug? What were their intentions? Who is the first person to smoke toad venom? And, why, and the toad venom is a weird one, too, because there's this bizarre misconception that you lick the toads. Right. Which, again, journalistically produced. Or is maybe, that what it is? maybe it was inspired by cartoons as well, to some extent, but I, yes. So the way you do it is you have to get the toad to excrete whatever this is, and you put it on glass, and then you dry it out. Is that the idea? That's the idea, yes. And then you scrape it off with a razor blade and then smoke it? That's it. And does it come, is it a pure form of 5-MeO-DMT? No, and there's actually very little chemical analysis that's been done in the 21st century. I analyzed a sample that I collected when I was in Sonora, and it contained, in addition to 5-MeO-DMT, it contained some interesting um, serotonin derivatives, including serotonin O-sulfate. And nobody knows how these different tryptamine components, as well as these steroidal lactones that are sometimes called bufotoxin, contribute to the experience. Um, if I had to guess, probably not that much, but maybe there's a little bit of that sort of entourage effect that you get with almost any plant that has a, a variety of different alkaloids that might inhibit certain enzymes or do this or that. Um, but it's about 15%, according to the older literature. The analysis that I did wasn't quantitative, so I don't know exactly what the concentration was, but it's somewhere in that region, and I'm sure it depends on whether the toad has been milked previously and all these other variables. Does the experience mirror taking synthetic 5-MeO-DMT? I haven't tried. I've tried synthetic 5-MeO-DMT a couple times. I've tried Bufal, various venom, once at a low dose, once at a high dose. They were all different, but then everything is different. Mushrooms are different every time I take them. You know, it's it's really hard once you start explaining a different experience based on the composition of the material because how do you assign it to the dose or the minute number of different tryptamines that are also present. It's really right. hard to say. Right. But, you know, I think that there is a strong argument to be made for using the synthetic as opposed to the toad-derived material simply because you don't have to harm or hurt. Not that it necessarily does harm toads, but you don't even have to risk it. Right, right. And it's easy to synthesize. Yeah. I'm sure toads aren't into getting rubbed on windshields. Yeah. Seems like a annoying day for a toad. Yeah. Yeah, they want to eat. <laughs> insects yeah whatever the fuck they do um one of the more interesting stories out of the last decade or so was um this story that i read about these scholars in jerusalem that were connecting the story of moses and the burning bush to the acacia bush and the acacia tree which is rich in dmt and they believe that you know when you're talking about a story that was told through oral traditions for who knows how many years and then written down in ancient Hebrew and then transcribed and, you know, and translated to Greek and Latin and all these, there's a lot lost in the mix. And they believe that what that story might have been about of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the the tablets and having the experience with meeting God in a burning bush that what this is in fact was a dimethyltryptamine experience maybe yeah i it's a big maybe it's a big maybe i can say that um if you go to the south of mexico in chiapas there's a a tree that grows there as a weed called mimosa hostilis maybe you're familiar with mm -hmm. it and this is so abundant that it's used to make fence posts all the fences on the side of the road are made of mimosa hostilis it's used as firewood to cook meals 
the air smells like DMT because people are using it as fuel all over the place. Not a single person that I spoke with was aware that it was psychoactive. And these are people that are burning it all the time. Do they get high from it? Is there, like, if you were in a tent or something like that, and you were doing a, a hot box sort of scenario, would you get high from it? No, I, I saw no. Would you? It may be, it's about 2% DMT, so... You'd probably have to get so sick from, you'd be coughing. and Yeah, it would be a very, I mean, even just smoking pure crystal DMT can be very difficult for some yeah. people. So my guess, not to be like a, a wet blanket, but my guess is not really. Um, and that's a very strong source, as strong as, maybe there's a, some acacias stronger, but that's certainly comparable. And that's something people are using to cook food all the time, and they're not aware that it's psychoactive. So was there a way, or is there a way, for a person living thousands of years ago to somehow or another extract DMT from something like the acacia tree? Um, that's a, I actually spent some time thinking about that a while ago. It would be... First of all, it depends on how you define extraction. If it were to, in like an ayahuasca sense, like a tea, of course, yes. But then they would need some sort of enzyme inhibitor to create the ayahuasca. If it were to create a, an isolated smokable form, again, you know, you could just do like an aqueous infusion and then dry that out and maybe smoke that. But in terms of like a real extraction that would produce crystals of DMT, I don't know what the nonpolar solvent they would be using to extract the freebase would be, like butter or something. And then how would you get rid of the butter? So what is the process like if you're going to take a, a tree that's rich in dmt and extract dmt from it what what do you have to use uh have you ever done it before no i've never done it oh okay well it's um it's a very generalizable and simple process that applies to almost everything in chemistry it's you know sometimes it's called an acid base extraction most people that are in the dmt community go something they call straight to base and the you know the idea is that the side chain of the DMT molecule contains a basic nitrogen that if it's protonated in an acidic solution, then it's water soluble. And if it's deprotonated, then it's only soluble in a nonpolar solvent. So what you do is you just deprotonate the nitrogen with a base, potassium hydroxide or sodium hydroxide typically, and then treat that aqueous basic solution with a nonpolar solvent like naphtha and isolate the naphtha dry it out, and you have your material. And that applies to everything. That's not a DMT-specific process, but that's what people do. Hmm. Everything with the basic nitrogen. Now, what's the earliest history of extraction? Do we... Well, you know, the first wave of DMT use in the United States was all synthetic. In fact, DMT was discovered synthetically before it was ever found in nature. The same is true of 5-MeO-DMT. How did they do that? There was a Canadian chemist named Richard Helmuth Mansky, who um, I believe was looking at different alkaloids in strawberry plants, and he was synthesizing references for these potential strawberry alkaloids and made DMT. So he didn't know what he had made other than a potential natural product found in strawberries. And, um, and then it wasn't until Zara, much later, conducted self-experiments with injected DMT that people became fully aware of its psychoactivity, and then people started finding it in plants. I mean, the, the 1950s were like a and early 60s were, of course, a fascinating time in psychedelic research because you have these convergences of these amazing ideas. First, you have the discovery of serotonin which is like, you know, 
we take this for granted now it's in television commercials but this was of course something that no one knew about and suddenly they're finding this in all kinds of different animals initially it was in the the salivary glands of squid and um, in different animals and then they're finding it in the human intestine then they're also finding that all of these plants that people worshipped in various indigenous societies also contain serotonin like molecules then they discover LSD and find that that's maybe the most potent known pharmacological agent at that time and binds to serotonin receptors. It activates a serotonin-type response in isolated tissue. So there's like this weird triple convergence of information. Super potent, amazing compound LSD is discovered. Serotonin is discovered in all these different organisms, and there's a pharmacological convergence between the two of them. And then you have all these people worshiping serotonin-like molecules. So there was you know, a lot of enthusiasm at that time to figure all of this out. So... In terms of history, so we're talking about like somewhere in the 1950s, they started extracting DMT. The use of it orally dates back far longer than that because of use of MAO inhibitors and creating ayahuasca. But in terms of the first extraction, we can kind of isolate. From plants yeah. to smoke? Yeah. It might have been even later. It might have been the 80s. Okay. So the idea that people thousands of years ago we're able to do something along those lines is probably probably not accurate because because they're talking about a burning bush that's why it's appealing to people right the idea of moses do you do you think that maybe the understanding of synthesis from you know synthesizing this from these scholars maybe they don't have enough of an understanding of, of chemistry well what would be really interesting is to do an experiment to see what were the materials that were available. How right. would this have been done? Would you have to use butter as your nonpolar solvent? How well would that work? What would your butter preparation be done? Would you put? Would you take it rectally then? Is that how it would work? I mean, you have <laughs> to kind of. What would your base have been? Well, I think they were talking about it being something from. I mean, burning right, a burning bush. Maybe it's just one of those things that sort of gets conflated, right? Because you have. People today that are very aware that people smoke DMT and have these incredibly intense religious psychedelic experiences. And then maybe they looked at the acacia bush and said, oh, the acacia bush is rich in DMT. That's probably where the Moses story came from. Right. Well, what's really interesting is, you know, DMT has never been found in the human brain, even though Rick Strassman says that it has been. So a lot of people are constantly assigning altered states of consciousness to DMT. But we can have these states without DMT. I mean, maybe it's never been found in the human brain, but also there's ethical and experimental issues with sampling fluid from a living human's brain. Right, but it has, they have found it in living rats, right? Yes, this have, is yes. fairly recently. Yes, this yeah. is the Cottonwood Research Foundation. That's, their, their attempt is to try to prove that the pineal gland is a source for DMT. We know that DMT exists in the human body. We know that the liver produces it. And we know that the lungs produce it. Yeah. We're not totally aware of whether or not there's anecdotal evidence that points to the pineal gland based on the rat yeah. idea and based on the presence of certain enzymes that could be responsible for it but even if it is even if it is then what you, there's still a whole question of how is it released how is it distributed what receptors does it activate and is it even necessary as an explanation for altered states of consciousness because there are other things in the brain other than dmt dmt right. has never even been found in the brain but there are other things you know you have endogenous uh, proteins that bind to the kappa opioid receptor the same receptor that um, is responsible for the effect of salvia um, things like that they could really? be responsible i mean even carbon dioxide itself 
can induce a pretty strong altered state of consciousness. Right, so, which is why people like those psychedelic breathing exercises. Yeah. They're sort of, is it like hypoxic? Is that what it is? What are they doing when they, they have those, um, the what, what is it called? There's a, a type of breathing exercise that induces psychedelic states. Holotropic. Holotropic. Breathwork. Yeah. And that is the idea behind that, right? It increases the amount of carbon dioxide in your blood. I haven't seen a, a mechanistic explanation. Hmm. Yeah, I think that was... But it would, yeah. it would make sense. In an early LSD psychotherapy, one of the things that they would do before giving someone LSD is they'd give them something called carbogen, which was a gas that contained carbon dioxide, and they would look at their response to the carbon dioxide inhalation. And if it induced a panic response, they would say, maybe you're not psychologically ready for this LSD experience. Ah. So that was, you're talking about a test. I mean, that was a, a very primitive early test that was used by psychiatrists to see if people were had the psychological fortitude to withstand the experience. That's fascinating. So tell me more about whatever is in the brain that mirrors the effects of salvia. It's a, a protein. I can't remember off the top of my head what it, it's. If you look up endogenous ligand for kappa opioid receptor, it will come up. Um, David Nichols recently wrote a paper that actually goes into alternate mechanisms of how the DMT type uh, near-death experience could be produced by non-DMT compounds. Mm. But I mean, you know, there was a lot of work also on endogenous um, NMDA receptor antagonists. There was a, uh, a protein that was called alpha endopsychosin or angel dustin, named <laughs> after angel dust. But the main researcher died in a car accident, like right as he was making some kind of breakthrough, breakthrough supposedly. Mm. But... Um, Cue spooky music. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but, you know, there's all, th this has been a, a longstanding question in psychiatry is, you know, what causes psychosis? What causes altered states of consciousness? Is there an endogenous psychedelic? That was like one of the major motivations for a lot of this research in the 60s, finding the endogenous psychotogen that is responsible for schizophrenia. Now it doesn't seem to be the case, but it's still a question that comes up. What if dopamine is methylated in a certain way to create dimethoxyphenethylamine? Or what about this? What about that? I mean, Shulgin was very interested in it, mm. about the metabolic production of various psychedelics that account for altered states of consciousness. It just hasn't been supported by evidence in a very strong way, even though people really find the idea compelling. And there was also the 5-MeO-DMT in schizophrenic people's urine. That's also a thing. Right. And the, we know that the body does produce 5-MeO-DMT. We just don't know where. Yeah, because, again, it's like what I was saying earlier about the, the depression tests where you look at your urine. So you find 5-MeO-DMT in your urine, and your first assumption might be, okay, there's 5-MeO-DMT in my body. It was in my brain. But you don't know that. Right. It could have been biosynthesized in your intestine, and it could have been excreted without ever entering your brain. Right. And this is the whole idea of monoamine oxidase, right? The idea that when we're eating things that are rich in DMT, monoamine oxidase is breaking it down in the gut. Yeah. So even if you're consuming something, so if something is, so how do they know that this, this uh, salvia-like substance exists in the mind or in the brain rather? Because this, um, this peptide or protein has been isolated. Do you find the name of it? Oh, okay. I only caught four of those words you said. Oh, okay. All right, well, it's... <laughs> and I lost what I was supposed to be getting. Oh, okay. It's not Sorry. important. Um, 
so we know there's a host of different psychoactive substances that are absolutely produced by the body and in 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 the in the brain, and that there's different ways that human beings have been able to achieve psychedelic states outside of consuming drugs. Have you done that? I've done lucid dreaming things. I've done kundalini yoga. The kundalini one is the one I'm most interested in because I have someone who's a friend of mine that got really into it. And he was saying that he can achieve very DMT-like states. You know, there's a really interesting aspect of all of this that uh, isn't often discussed, which is the ability to have these states and still interact with your environment. Because, of course, there's something very physically taxing about breath of fire or these kundalini breathing techniques. If you induce an altered state of consciousness, you need to be focused and you need to be in a specific place sitting down, where psychedelics have this amazing ability to allow you to have that experience but walk around. Mm. And I think that's not to be underestimated, the walking around, because then you can really re-examine your environment. That's a big part of it for me. A big part of the psychedelic experience is seeing what is New York like? What do I like or not like about New York? What do I like or not like about my apartment? These, <laughs> because it matters. These and things you, matter. This it, is your environment. Do you want to sure. be surrounded by clutter that you don't like? If you don't, get rid of it. Right. These are the sorts of thoughts you have. And this is my other issue with going to the Peruvian Amazon to have a psychedelic experience. Because if you do it in this place that is superficially inappropriate, like your apartment, I think it has the most applicability to your own existence in terms of the music you listen to, your friends, your environment, your life. You're confronted by the books that you read, the photos of the people that you know, all the things that matter to you. Not a jungle, although jungles are very beautiful and visually stimulating, and I'm sure and are, I know, an amazing place to use psychedelics, um, I think that we underestimate the value these things have when integrated into a more normal type of experience. And that's something you can't do as easily with uh, Kundalini. Right, right. That makes sense. So when you're using psychedelics, you will use them and walk around New York City? Yes. What is that like? Um, I often feel a lot of love. For people. Really? Yeah, which is, you know, because I think that we also tend to get into these uh, very angry, oh, the subway is annoying, the guy is taking up too much room, I have to mm -hmm. stand, it's taking forever, it smells weird, whatever. Everyone is looking at their phones all the time, which is a little bit dark. Um, and then, you know, if you're on a low dose of a psychedelic or even a higher one, sometimes I'll look at everyone on their phones and I'll just feel compassion and love and think like, what a strange situation we've all gotten ourselves into. I love all these people. And it's like, I don't know what to say about it, but I understand it completely. And I don't know where we're going from here. And you suddenly feel connected to something that's very real, which is people on the subway not looking at each other anymore. Yeah. I mean, this is in my own life, something that has changed dramatically. When I moved to New York, no one looked at phones. Now people only look at phones. Everyone is looking at phones the entire time they're on the subway. This is a total change in human behavior. And you really start thinking about things like that. And it matters because it's not in the Amazon. It's your life. And these are the things, the choices that you make. Are you going to be a person that looks at their phone all the time as well? Yeah, it's fascinating how quickly that took hold. Yeah. If you look at human history, I mean, the iPhone is 10 years old. I know. You know, and that's really when it started. So 10 years ago, people, and even then, in the beginning of the iPhone, they were fucking useless. Right. You know, you'd get online, and it was just really slow and terrible. And so most of the time, you just text messages. But now, with all the apps and social media and constant 
constant updates of information and new things and new events and new trends. And it's just, and it's always calling you. I better check, make sure anything's, de- we've been on this podcast for two hours. Let me see what's going on. Uh-huh. Oh, look at that. All these messages. Uh-huh. Oh, <laughs> weird. You did it to me. Actually, I have this, this uh, vivid memory of standing at your front door and you selling Twitter to me saying like, oh, you've got to, you've got to use Twitter. <laughs> it's amazing. People send all, send you all these articles and it's so useful. You learn so much. It's really amazing. Cause I only had one tweet at that time uh-huh. and now it's like 2,500 tweets later and hundreds of hours of my life i'll never get i'm back. sorry i got you <laughs> i got you um it, it is that way still for me in many ways i learn a lot about what's going on in the world in terms of, i follow a lot of science tweets uh, uh twitter accounts and a lot of really interesting people that post interesting stuff but you gotta know how to abandon a tweet several words in like, eh, this is bullshit. Oh, I'm not reading that. No, I'm not reading that. Oh, what can they do now? <laughs> the Ooh, tweets are too long. This is crazy. No, it's not even that. It's just knowing that it's going to be horseshit. This is going to be just either gossip or nonsense or not interesting. But there's yeah. still a shit ton of really useful information that you can get out of Twitter on a daily basis. There's always something new that's coming out. And I try to retweet those things as much as possible when I see something that someone sends me and then that becomes people know, Hey, if you send Joe something really cool and he reads it, if I get a chance to read it, I'll retweet it and people get a kick out of that. So they'll send me more cool stuff. And so then it's sort of, it's, it's, it sort of becomes a, like a little ecosystem almost for disseminating interesting ideas. Yeah. But it's also bullshit too. There's a lot of bullshit in there. (laughs) A lot of, a lot of arguing, which I don't do. I just don't argue. I think it's a very ineffective way to communicate with people with, you know, going back and forth with stuff like that online. It just doesn't work well. It's and it becomes, I think, more like idea sport with a lot of folks. Like they're just trying to win these little battles and find the the, the witty or nasty thing to say. And it's just it's not productive. It's not healthy. I don't like it. Well, they're doing the same thing that journalists do, which is that you get more attention for doing the wrong thing than you do for saying the right thing. Right. So, and we all know that feeling where someone says something about you that's unfair and wrong, and mm-hmm. you want to say, hey, wait a second about yes. that. That is totally incorrect. I'm going to set the record straight. Yeah. And that's what gets the engagement, not the kind, thoughtful, considerate thing that somebody says. Yes. Yes. I would love to accentuate the trend of kindness. I really think that that is one thing. If there's any one trend and to lean towards kindness, to just to just to be nicer to people. And if we could all sort of agree that this is a virtue worth pursuing. I think we could change the way human beings interact with each other. These shifts, like the shift of looking at your phone. If we could figure out a shift, and one of the more disturbing things to me that comes from the left, which I've always associated myself with being a left-leaning person, that there's a lot of meanness coming from the left now. And it's a lot lot of, of, uh, by any means necessary, a lot of feeling the need to squash people and humiliate people and insult people because they don't agree with what you believe. And that this, this is a, I think this is a terrible path to go down because then it sort of justifies people who think the opposite of that to be mean to you. So now no one's getting anything done because this side's being insulting and that side's being insulting and people are getting kicked out of restaurants and people are protesting in front of people's houses because they disagree with things. And it's just a lot of cruelty, 
a lot of like meanness and cruelty, which is the enemy of discourse. As soon as that stuff gets thrown about, as soon as it becomes a war, an idea war or an idea sport, people are just trying to win and they're trying to get back at you for what you said and you get back at them for that. And it becomes this terrible stall out situation. Yeah. We've all bought into a game and it's a bad game to play. It's the worst possible game and it's very transparent. I mean, you look at what shows up on the first page of Twitter and it's things that are perfectly designed to generate opinions. So teacher says that now classrooms will be equipped with a bucket of stones to throw at a school shooter. And what do you feel? Oh, that's stupid. Or hey, that's actually kind of a good idea. It's better than nothing. And everyone's engaging with it. And you're buying into it. You're supporting it. And you're promoting it. And you're making it bigger by paying attention to it. I mean, there's an amazing book that I recommend anyone listening to this read called Amusing Ourselves to Death by Neil Postman, which he wrote in 1985 before computers, before social media, before any of this. He predicts all of it perfectly without even knowing the faintest hint of what was going to happen. And, you know, his solution, if there is one, is, you know, partially to disengage from all of this, but to try to appreciate long, nuanced, careful things, which is very hard to achieve on Twitter or television or most places when yeah. we try our best. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why podcasts, like especially ones like this, that are these long-form conversations, are becoming popular because people are hungry for actual communication. They're hungry for people that are just, even if we disagree on things, I want to know why you think the way you think, and I want to hear it all. I want to hear all of your reasoning. I want to hear the thought process that led you to that. I want to hear that. And I want to be able to talk to you about how I think and why I think the way I think. And maybe we can come to some middle ground or at least understand each other. Or I go, oh, I see where you went or I see why you do. I see what's happening inside your, your mind or the way you feel or how it relates to your life. This is absent in most discourse on television. It's absent in all talk shows. It's like what we were talking about, the, the oddness of a panel show. I mean, they're so bizarre. It doesn't make any sense. None of it, it's not how human beings interact with each other. Can you imagine if every conversation you had in your life, there was an audience clapping or wooing at everything you said? You'd, I mean, it, it creates this sort of fake way of communication that has become so commonplace with us. Just even the way they sit sitting next to each other like this, like we're not looking at each other. I would be sitting over here and you'd be at the desk and I'd be like, well, Hamilton, funny you bring that up. But, you know, and then look at the crowd. It's just, it's, it's alien. I mean, it's really weird. And I think because of the fact that people are so addicted to their phones and addicted to media and this constant influx of this loop of information. I mean, if you watch the news, they can't just give you the fucking news. You have to get that scroll on the bottom of other shit that you should be freaking out about. It's like the news itself's not enough. No, you have to know about terrorist attacks and fucking ISIS and some new flu that can't be cured. And it's all scrolling on the bottom while you're watching other shit. We, we this is not how human beings are designed. We're designed to talk. We're designed to communicate with each other person to person. This is what we're good at. This is what we're, we've lost. And the one thing that has probably led to more people understanding more about each other, actual conversations, is rare, which is really weird. You're, it's way more common for someone to look at their phone for 10 hours a day than it is for someone to have a one-on-one -on -one 
uninterrupted conversation with someone for an hour. That's Those don't exist. True. They don't, they exist with lovers. That's it. With lovers and occasionally with if you have polite dinner companions that put their phone down and just drink a glass of wine and talk to you about stuff. But even then, people suck at it. People are, it's almost like people forgot how to do it. They talk over each other. They don't listen to each other when the other person's talking. They're just waiting their turn to talk. It's a, we're, we're going down weird roads that these roads where we're sort of distancing ourselves from compassion and understanding and real communication. Absolutely. I don't know what to do about it either. Psychedelics might help. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I think they would help. I think if we had like real centers where you could go and just like you could go to a place where uh, you can get a licensed therapist to uh, massage you, you know, hey, I've got this back pole and, you know, the only thing that works is deep tissue massage. You go to a place, they give you a robe, they play nice music, they give you tea, and they're, they're setting the set and se- the, the setting and the, 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 the ambiance of the room, it, it, it enhances the experience of getting the massage. When you go into the room, the lights are down. They might have a candle lit. You know, there's uh, some fucking hot rocks in the place, and they're playing beautiful harp music in the background. The set and setting is a part of the experience of getting a massage. If we could have something like that and have these things common for the use of psychedelics, where you could go to a re, uh, an actual, some sort of a therapist that's trained in both psychotherapy and the use of psychedelics. So they could talk to you and find out if you're stable, ask you questions about your medical history, what kind of medications are you on, how are you feeling, what, what are you trying to achieve through this, and then work you through an experience. I mean, I think this could be enormously beneficial. Like a, a, a it already massive, has been. Sure. It already has been. I mean, that's, you know, we keep talking about psychedelic medicine all the time, but so much of this has been done. That's the really crazy thing. Ibogaine used to be a pharmaceutical in France, although it was used at lower doses that weren't psychedelic. There used to be an MDMA. What were they using it for? As like a tonic to stimulate people. It was called Lamborghini, eight milligram tablets. What is an effective dose? Threshold psychoactivity, in my experience, is about 20 milligrams of the hydrochloride salt. But so they were microdosing. They were, they were mini microdosing. Mini microdosing ibogaine. They may have used multiple tablets. I don't know. I've, if anyone is familiar with French historical literature relating to ibogaine, I have a little bit of it, but there isn't much. I mean, again, they used to use a psychedelic called Indopan as an antidepressant in the Soviet Union. In the United States, there was a drug called Monase, alpha-ethyltryptamine. It was used as an antidepressant. It's an MDMA-type serotonin releaser. And then, of course, the whole history of DPT-facilitated um, end-of-life therapy, LSD psychotherapy, um, on and on. Everything Shulgin's group did using 2CB, MMDA, Ibogaine. Um, this was along with Claudio Naranjo in order to facilitate psychotherapy. I mean, people not only were doing it, they were exploring all the different ways to do it, which compounds are best for which applications. Hmm. Do you have any experience with cacao? Yes. What, what is your experience in terms of the psychedelic effects or psychoactive effects? Um, it's mildly stimulating because of the theobromine content. 
But does it mirror a small dose of MDMA or not in my experience? No, no this is what was it was Kyle that was talking about that right Kyle Kingsbury He was saying that in large doses that raw cacao has some sort of a mild MDMA like effect I've heard people say that and people will sometimes say that the presence of phenethylamine in cacao could account for that but it's such a small amount, trace mm. quantities, less than a milligram, and the active dose of phenethylamine is hundreds of milligrams or grams in order to achieve a psychoactive effect. So I think the effect that people do experience is probably mediated by theobromine, which is present in in uh, relatively high quantities. That's how the you know it's named after the genus theobroma. And theobromine does what? How does it make you feel? It's a, it's a caffeine-type stimulant. Oh, okay. So when, when people say that chocolate contains caffeine, what they, they're really referring to theobromine. And is that why it's deadly to dogs? Yes, it is. Huh. So it's theobromine that's doing it. Yep. Fascinating. So it's not actually caffeine. No. It's just a caffeine-like substance. It's less potent than caffeine. What was your experience like physically? How did you feel when you took this uh, this cacao? And what what how, how large a dose? I mean, I used to eat it every day. Um, like raw? Yeah, like powder, beans, the powder. Yeah, powder. I used to eat it every day and yogurt and um, just as a health thing. Yeah, as a health thing, and I liked the the flavor of it, but. I have never had an experience beyond, at most, a low-level stimulant experience. And I've also taken pure theobromine, and it is stimulating, but it requires like 500 milligrams to achieve an effect, if I remember correctly. Hmm. Um, what other? Th- what about, um, you ever fuck with nutmeg? No, but I mean, it's a fascinating area. Um, of course, you know, prisoners historically did it, Malcolm X did it, yeah. and the essential oil of nutmeg contains um, meristicin, which is a precursor for the psychedelic amphetamine MMDA, not MDMA, but it's methoxy MDA, and uh, as well as elamicin, um, which is another psychedelic precursor as well as, um, there's I think one other, maybe even saffron actually. I think it's saffron, elamicin, and meristicin. And Shulgin had a hypothesis. Again, Shulgin was actually by training a biochemist, not an organic chemist, although he spent his career doing organic chemistry. So he was very interested in these ideas of the body creating psychedelics. So he thought when you consume nutmeg oil that your body is is emanating um, this double bond and creating a, a series of different amphetamines, and that's what accounts for the high. But in reality, people don't actually know. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. So uh, what kind of history of use th- does it have in terms of like people taking it for the psychoactive benefits? Um, I'm sure there is some ancient, or I would be, I would assume there is some ancient use of it, but, um, you know, it's mostly like a thing for teenagers and people in prison these days. It's kind of, it's illegal high. It's one of these things that you do when you don't have access to, to anything else. It's, and most of the reports make it sound, um, more like an anticholinergic deliriant type experience, more like taking a lot of dramamine than, than like a, a classical psychedelic experience, but you can use that oil to make a lot of psychedelics. Um, in a laboratory. Wow. Now, history of use is also so fascinating to me when you talk about history of use because um, there are certain cultures that really don't have a written history. They have oral history. So it's very difficult to determine when people started. Um, What about peyote? What is the history of use of peyote? Because I remember reading something that kind of stunned me 
that said that there's only like a couple hundred years of known use of peyote. Yeah. Well, okay. So there's, there's different histories because peyote is used, it grows naturally over a relatively broad region stretching from the southern United States into, I believe, uh, mostly northern Mexico. And so in the United States, the history is about 100 years old of the Native American church. Wow. It's, it's recent. Um, but That's then, crazy. So 1918. Something like that. Yes. It was a, a, a Comanche chief named Quana Parker um, who spread the peyote religion across the United States. And it caught on because it's fantastic. Of course it caught on. I've never experienced it. What is it like? Um, well, again, it's another one of these plants that has mescaline, of course, but then it has these other accessory alkaloids that modulate the experience. So what's really interesting about peyote is it contains this chemical called peyotine. And peyotine, I have some uh, pharmacy trade journals from like 1890 or something like that. No, no, maybe it must be later than that. It must be maybe like 19. 19- 15 or something like that, sometime around there. And they talk about, like, your pharmacy must have morphine, cocaine, and peyotine, the three substances every pharmacist needs. And, uh, and peyotine was used as a hypnotic. It was used to induce sleep. But there's been no, very little research on it, none in the 21st century. I mean, this is like, uh, was once considered a really valuable medicine. The issue is that it's a little bit tricky to synthesize, and it has to be extracted from this rare cactus, Lophophora diffusa. But um, but that modulates the experience. You have so many different alkaloids, and um, and it it's very long lasting. It causes dramatic pupil dilation. It's extremely nauseating. I, vom- I made an episode about peyote um, in the most recent season of my show, um, and. I vomited so much that my nose started bleeding. Um, you know, it was it was some serious vomiting, um, and it's physically very, very punishing. More so than almost anything I've ever done. I would in terms of the after effects or while you're doing it. While you're doing it, it's it's a heavy load on the body. Um, so it, it's people always say this is not recreational or whatever, but it truly isn't. You know, this is really. Um, a punishing experience. And on top of that, the Native American ceremonies often accentuate some of those punishing aspects of it, like water is conserved. You don't get to drink as much water as you want, but to emphasize the importance of water. In Mazatec salvia ceremonies, there's no water at all, which I think is actually increases the absorption of the leaf into your mouth because the natural reaction when you eat something disgusting is to wash it Mm -hmm. down with water. These are little things that people do impulsively without thinking that are going to change the nature of the experience. So anyway, you eat this cactus. It's incredibly nauseating and bitter. And then you have maybe a 12-hour hallucinatory, euphoric uh, um, state that's very beautiful and strange. And you just eat the cactus raw? Yeah. Some people grind it. Some people cook it. The cactus, you could get that shit at Home Depot. You can get San Pedro at Home Depot. It's not the same? No, no. Peyote is a dumpling cactus. It's a very small, um, somewhat spherical cactus that produces beautiful white and pink flowers. And um, it's incredibly slow growing, which is why the conservation of peyote is an even bigger issue than the conservation of toads. I mean, peyote, all these psychedelic plants have major conservation issues that need to be addressed. But peyote is arguably the biggest of them all because this is a slow growing 
plant. If you want to learn patience, grow peyote. That is how you learn. I mean, this this bottle cap. I mean, it, it would take five years before it's the size of a dime if you grow it from seed. Wow. Yes. So when you're eating something that's you know um, that's as big as the coffee rim mug. of a coffee mug or something like that, it might be 20, 30 years old. Jesus Christ. So there's a lot of history in these plants. They call them grandfather peyote. And I think the reason is that by the time that they're ready to be consumed, they often are grandfathers or grandmothers. They have produced seeds and have offspring and all of this stuff because it takes that long. Um, so yes, it's very slow growing. Um, it's not a sustainable practice the way that it's being done, but there's also even bigger threats to the environment in the form of root plowing all of the territory to build Walmarts and subdivisions and different things in South Texas because most of that land is privately owned. And, um, and, and it's difficult because there's a belief in the Native American church that it has to be outdoor, natural, grown. It can't be a greenhouse cultivated plant because part of the potency and the value is from its interaction with nature. So oh. it's it's if it's sustainably harvested where only the crown of the cactus is removed but this long carrot-like taproot is left in the soil, it can regenerate new heads. But if people don't have proper harvesting techniques, it can decimate the population very quickly, especially because it's not a very potent substance. It requires many of these ultra, ultra, ultra slow growing plants. Wow. So what is the natural territory of it? How wide is the natural territory of these plants? I can't tell you exactly, but it's not very large. So if it got very popular, there'd be a real problem. Yeah, it, it probably won't. I mean, you know, the people that care most about it outside of the Native American church are, interestingly, um, cactophiles in Thailand and Japan who grow it for purely aesthetic purposes because it's so beautiful. They, and they would never even consider it because to them it's this prized ornamental plant that produces amazing fruit and flowers and lives seemingly forever. And if you take care of it, it can just look amazing. Mm. So um, those, there's a huge peyote scene in Thailand of people that never would dream of consuming it, that just grow it ornamentally. Wow. Now, San Pedro cactus, does that have psychoactive properties? Absolutely, yes. And did you have to extract it in a different way? Um, like peyote, it can be consumed raw. Um, the, with some varieties of San Pedro, they actually contain comparable quantities of mescaline to peyote, and it's a much more sustainable source of mescaline for that reason. It grows, unlike peyote, it grows very, very quickly and, um, and can be propagated by cutting easily. And it, you know, it's much easier to work with. Um, but traditionally, if you go to Peru, they'll take a length of the cactus and they'll cut it like a loaf of bread into slices. Then they boil those slices and create a sort of low-potency aqueous infusion that they drink. And what's interesting about the way they do it is that it seems that it's almost designed to create a lower-potency drink. The way they do it, they drink every night, the shamans, every night of their entire life. And many people come back and do it repeatedly. And for them, it's sort of, it's like a traditional form of microdosing, you could say. It's not mm. about blasting yourself into the cosmos the way people do when they smoke DMT. This is about um, fortifying your body, giving yourself strength, cleansing yourself, balancing yourself. And are there people that consume it raw as well? Not that I saw there, no. Hmm. Oh, but people do. But people do. I have. And what is the effect? Is it comparable to the peyote effect? 
it's comparable, but it's, yeah, it's comparable. But again, it, it gets very hard because of these variations with natural with products trips, yeah. in terms of the potency of the cactus and that point in your life. And, you know, people will always come up to me and say, what's the deal with MDMA? It used to be like this, and now it's like this. What accounts for that? And it's like, well, don't underestimate your own changes over time. When I was 21, I could drink alcohol. Not that I did very often, but I could and not want to kill myself the next day. Now, if I try to drink more than three drinks, I'm going to feel horrible the next day, mm. like just emotionally ruined. And that's me, not alcohol. Now, you brought up the term uh, hypnotic, yeah. and um, which made me uh, remind reminded me of our conversation that we had through email about Roseanne Barr. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And oh, yes, about, of course. Yes. And about Ambien. Yeah. And about the effects of Ambien. She came on the show? She still hasn't. Oh. Um, she can't... She's having a really hard time with this. Um, she feels terrible about what she said. She feels like the whole world hates her. She feels like she's lost everything and her life is destroyed and she's distraught. And she she was going to fly out here, but... We had a conversation, and we kind of decided it'd be probably better if she waited, just let let some of this pass by. It's still in the news because they've decided to move the show on without her. They're they're going to kill her off or something. Oh man, yeah, and she's just devastated, and uh, you know she was also devastated health wise, uh, physically. She's an older woman, and. Not that it'd be any different. She was an older man. She's an older person. And this grueling schedule of doing a television show was horrible on her. It just, it was really, really tough to do. She got bronchitis. She felt like she was almost dying. She was completely exhausted. And she felt like the schedule of it all just was just way too taxing on her physically. Then on top of that, she's on a host of different things. She's, I mean, she'll, if we ever do wind up sitting down and talking on the podcast, I'll get her to, to list the various things she's on. But she's on various antidepressants. They, she changes them up, mixes them up. She was, one of the things she said to me, she's, she needs to get her doses readjusted. She drinks alcohol regularly. She smokes marijuana regularly. She's also on Ambien regularly. Takes it every night to go to sleep. And um, I tried to explain to her the fact that you're not getting real sleep when you're on that. This is not something you should take and rely on on a daily basis. They even tell you to get off of it. I mean, it's, it's, and it's difficult to get off of it. Um, but people want to dismiss the idea that she could have said something that's completely out of character or done something that's completely out of character while under the influence of this stuff that it could have contributed to that. They want to dismiss it because they want a villain. They want, a, you know, no, she's bad. They want this, like, this childlike, simplistic reasoning and rationalization for what she's done. Right. And this is, you know, a prime example of the sort of schizophrenic nature of the way drugs are depicted in our society. If, um, it's, if it's something like bath salts or K2, they're responsible for everything. One toke of that stuff, and you're eating your best friend's face under a bridge. But then in Roseanne's case, they have no explanation whatsoever, no exculpatory value. They can't be used to explain anything. Is it an excuse? No. Is it an explanation? I think yes. I think that 
intoxication can explain all sorts of inappropriate behavior. And to pretend otherwise um, is, again, dishonest. I know uh, Sanofi, the pharmaceutical company that manufactures Ambien, had this widely shared tweet saying that racism isn't a side effect of Ambien. But it's a little bit ridiculous for them to have done that, you know, especially to someone who's mentally ill, because you know, if you look at the medical literature, the fact of the matter is that Ambien is associated with all sorts of absurd behaviors, command hallucinations, where people stab themselves, jump out windows, people that, you know, butter their cigarettes and smoke them, people that paint their houses in the middle of the night with no memory whatsoever. And it's a profoundly, profoundly disinhibiting drug. So, you know, here, here's maybe a somewhat analogous example from my own life. I never take Ambien on planes for this reason, because I'm around strangers. I don't know what I'm going to say or what I'm going to do, let alone use Twitter. But I don't. it's uncomfortable because it's so disinhibiting. I might do something weird. I don't know, take off my shirt. I have no idea. You, who's to predict what you're going to do when you have no inhibitions whatsoever? So I remember once I was on the plane to Berlin, and I did take Ambien. And I start in a sort of delusional state thinking that the cabin crew and the person that's announcing over the intercom is saying various Nazi things. That's like an unfair stereotype that all Germans are Nazis. That's offensive. But I had no control over this. Like, just because they're German, talking in German doesn't mean that this is like a Nazi airship because you're just completely out of your mind. Wow. But again, I mean, I'll, I, like another story, um, I used to be friends with a girl whose dad was a psychiatrist, prescribed her immense quantities of Ambien, and um, she would snort it. There's no reason to snort it. It's water-soluble. It has a fast onset of action. There's no benefit in snorting it. It's fine orally if you're going to take it at all. And there's no reason to take high doses. It's already a delirium at the therapeutic dose. You don't need to take more. Even five milligrams induces delirium. But, um, but I remember at, I was at some party, and someone was saying that they wanted ketamine did anyone at the party have ketamine and uh, just a complete stranger and i said oh i actually have a little bit of ketamine but it's at my apartment here are the keys and here's my address and uh, just run over to my apartment and t- and help yourself talk to you later and uh and then um I ne- i'm one of these people i've never lost my phone never lost my keys i don't lose things so then i you know wake up the next morning go to my apartment reach into my pocket my keys are gone and then it hits me this flash of oh my god I gave my keys away to a complete stranger to go to my apartment and take ketamine from me. What on earth was I thinking? What, like, what level of disinhibition is required to do something that insane? Luckily, I was then had to spend the rest of the day tracing, finding out who that person was, getting my keys, and these people happened to be very courteous people and actually did go to my apartment, did take the small amount of ketamine that I had, and then just locked the door after themselves and didn't make a mess. <laughs> But again, I mean, this is like Jesus. this is a, a profoundly disinhibiting substance, and also I think the idea that a drug couldn't modulate uh, racist activity is interesting as well, because there's a study that you can look up um, where they used the beta blocker propranolol, and they found that it actually seems to block racial implicit racial bias in people in certain tests. And what they're suggesting is that there's an adrenergic component to implicit racial bias but there's a certain maybe heart rate or fear response and once that that's physiologically blocked you become less racist in a sense 
implicitly. It's not a conscious decision. Conscious racism isn't reduced, but an implicit racial bias is. I mean, these are like really complicated, higher level questions about how drugs impact cognitive functioning. And, um, and the bottom line, I think, is be careful being certain about anything about what drugs can or can't do. What is this, Jamie? Oh, this is the story. Blood pressure, pressure. drug reduces inbuilt, what is that word? Inbuilt racism. Common heart disease drug may have an unusual side effect of combating racism. <laughs> Wasn't that a fucking, that was that stupid movie with Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt, as good as it gets. He was a racist and they gave him a pill. They gave him some medication and it reduced racism. It stopped him from being racist. Whoa, I completely forgot about I that I remember part. it because I was angry. Because a bunch of people from the, the, the... I was working on a television show at the time. A bunch of people were talking about how great a movie it was because it was this weird, dark sort of film. And I was like, that movie fucking sucked. It was so depressing. Here, this woman, she's got... Uh, you know, She's like a waitress and Jack Nicholson is this old racist asshole and she's relying on him for some real reason because she can't find anyone who's nice to her and and he's racist but the 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 resolve of the film was that he just was sick and they gave him some medication he wasn't racist anymore i'm like get the fuck out of here that doesn't make any sense meanwhile maybe it does I mean, Ambien is an amazing, amazing substance. I made a piece about it called the Ambien Effect years ago. I don't know if you're familiar. There are people who are paralyzed who can take Ambien and start walking again. It has what? the power to regenerate regions of the to regenerate activity in regions of the brain that look dead on fMRI. It is a wacky drug. It's also chemically very similar to 5-methyl DMT. It's it's not it's not like a benzodiazepine like Valium. It has its own bizarre structure. I mean, it's a weird drug. So when these people are paralyzed, why are they paralyzed? Like what what is wrong with them? Strokes, traumatic brain injury, various reasons. There's a, a book about it called Hope in Brain Damage, I believe the title of it is. And Ambien somehow or another temporarily fixes it. Yes, temper only for the duration of the drug effect. So there's people that are in a, you know, persistent vegetative state. They take Ambien and suddenly they wake up. What the fuck? Yes, yeah. It's pretty. It's well documented, and it's a really bizarre effect that is exclusively present in Ambien and maybe slightly in um, Baclofen as well. Yeah, I thought that the the statement that the pharmaceutical company made about uh, racism not being a side effect was kind of cute. It was kind of witty. Yeah. It was uh, very snarky. Yes. But the problem with that shit is, well, what are the side effects? And then you go into the actual side effects. And you're like, holy shit, how is this legal? And then you go into the side effects of like, what is this doing to people? Like, what? Oh, yeah. Here's another one. It supposedly increases consolidation of negative memories. Whoa. Yeah. There's a lot of weird stuff. Negative memories. Increases consolidation of negative memories, causes just total hallucinatory insanity at higher doses, maybe the most powerful disinhibiting agent I'm aware of, and is able to restore cognitive and motor functioning in people with traumatic brain injuries. What a weird drug. Very weird. And not, not something people should be taking every day. Just not. It's certainly addictive. I mean, it binds to, even though it's not a benzodiazepine itself, it binds to the benzodiazepine site on the GABA-A receptor. But yes, no, it's, it's addictive. It's super addictive. So for that reason alone, people shouldn't be taking it every day because you'll become horrendously dependent on it.
And withdrawal is ruthless. Yeah, see, the withdrawal is total insomnia. So most people just go right back to it. Or, you know, you can then tran like you can transition onto different types of hypnotics, like taking an anticholinergic like Benadryl to sleep or cannabinoids, cannabis, things like that. Or, um, you know, just things that don't bind to the GABA-A receptor in order to try to reduce tolerance. There's ways around it. You're not doomed if you start taking it, but it's, it's certainly um, habit forming and something that's best to avoid if you don't require it. And it doesn't give you real sleep, correct? I mean, you're, you're missing some part of the sleep cycle. Dr. Matthew Walker was on here as a sleep specialist, and he went into depth about it, but I really don't remember his exact description, but he was talking about how it bypasses certain cycles and you're, you're not getting a real night's sleep. I, I'm not aware of that. I mean, there, there's, it wouldn't surprise me hugely. You know, there's still debate about what the most restful part of sleep is. Um, I think most literature points to actually non-REM sleep, uh, slow wave sleep being the most restful type, and that's actually supported or promoted by chemicals like muscimol from the Amanita muscaria mushroom. Mm. Um, that that and and there was one pharmaceutical derivative called gaboxidol that I did an episode about on the most recent season of my show, and that really does produce incredibly restful sleep that is superior to Ambien. But like Ambien, it was also psychedelic, even more psychedelic, probably. Jesus. So this is an issue. It seems that for whatever reason, a lot of these drugs that really promote um, sleep effectively also happen to be hallucinogenic, and nobody knows exactly why. But it's been a, a pharmaceutical barrier because we don't live in a culture that allows people to go nuts at night. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I'm glad you brought up the Amadita muscaria because that's another one um, that is uh, almost like a a drug of lore more than a drug of application. You don't really hear too much about people getting real good experiences. No, you don't. But it's also connected to... Uh, you know, the sacred mushroom in the cross, the cover of it from John Marco Allegro has the name Amanita muscaria. He thought that the Amanita muscaria was probably linked to psychedelic states and prehistoric Christianity. We, well, we don't know, right? Oh, he's such a salacious, wacky guy. Was he? Oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. I mean, he, he was getting off on it. He loved it. He would love getting off on freaking people out on about freaking out Christians. Ah. I mean, that was a you can't underestimate what he was saying. He was saying all of Christianity is a sex cult that yeah. worships a fungal phallus, <laughs> and the semen of that phallus are the spores. Yeah, that all of Christianity is an ancient fertility cult. That's a big claim from a serious Oxford-educated Dead Sea Scroll scholar who was respected up until that point. Yeah, who was also an ordained minister. Yeah. I mean, there's a, a great book called Shroom that argues that this was all some kind of cynical attack on the Christian religion and that he didn't even believe it himself. Um, mm. the, the issue is that in order to carefully uh, examine his claims, you need to speak, what is it, ancient Aramaic or something? Yeah. So it's like, it doesn't, I'm not in a position reading his book, which is all having to do with the etymology of these words, their origins in different languages. I just don't know enough about these ancient languages to make a, an informed assessment of his claims, but uh, which is, I think, one reason that they've kind of hung around in this lore for such a long time, because it's hard for people to say with certainty um, 
if they're true or not, although I lean to them toward them probably not being well-supported. <laughs> <laughs> Big pause. Why is that? Um, it just seems too but, wacky. Yeah, because they're not, I haven't seen them integrated into any serious work since. Mm. Um, not that that's necessarily seems a good like argument. It would take a lot of education to be able to even understand whether or not that debate is cogent. Right. Right. It's, it's the same deal. I encounter this sometimes on like really fringe aspects of physics and chemistry where someone will make some kind of wacky argument about the way atoms bond or something like that. And it's like it's it gets hard because you only have like a small handful of people that are capable of seriously evaluating the claims able to weigh in. And then it doesn't really get vetted in a serious way. Yeah. So things just linger around as maybe it's true, maybe it's not. But um, but the bottom line is that most people don't get a, a valuable experience from these mushrooms but some do some people have figured out how to make it work and the experience is again it's you know it's its own thing it's a gabaergic delirium it takes you into a dreamy drunk zone yeah and it's it's in many ways a toxin right it's toxic in some forms well, well it contains another chemical ibotenic acid that is potentially very toxic, although it hasn't really been examined. In fact, it also contains a complex of this element, vanadium, that could potentially be toxic as well. So there are some legitimate toxicity concerns that I think anyone who's consuming it should be aware of. Um, you know, the ideal situation would be isolated muscimol, but it's hard to extract. Hmm. And But yet it's connected in so much artwork and so so much ancient depictions of it's particularly of Christmas cards. There's always elves and these little Amanita muscaria caps. Right. Well, drugs aside, you have to acknowledge that it's a spectacularly beautiful mushroom. Yeah, it's I mean, amazing. if you, I've gone mushroom hunting all over the world, and there is no question that when you see that mushroom in habitat, that it's completely spectacular. There's yeah. nothing else like it. It is a magical experience just looking at it. Yeah, I ran across it only once in uh, Colorado in the woods and it was amazing. It's like this bi it was a big one too. It was this big beautiful red with white dots on it. It's like one of the most gorgeous things you could ever see growing. Yeah. Yeah, and it's legal, right? You you it's legal to possess. Again, yes, it's legal because it's not really that do anything enjoyable it. for most people. But is it possible that we just are doing it wrong and that the the information has been lost as to how to... Because a lot of people felt like it might have been a part of SOMA, which hasn't really been defined as to what SOMA is. Right. Yeah, those those debates are not really my, uh, my cup of tea. Right. Because it's like just tons of guys pushing this or that mm -hmm. argument without like a lot of evidence one way or the other and so i don't know and then there's people that argue that urine drinking is somehow yeah. required to concentrate the muscimol in one way or another um you know if you want to learn about it i think the best way to do it is actually through this other related drug gaboxidol which was um almost developed by Merck as a competitor for Ambien. And there's some high-dose reports of gaboxidol that give you a much clearer example, and from my own experience as well, of what the potential of that class is. And it's very different. It's every bit as powerful as ayahuasca or something like that, but completely different. Mm. Um, and it's hard to articulate. All these things are hard to articulate, but it's something that's been experienced by relatively few people so that you don't even have this... Uh, 
spiritual or metaphorical vocabulary for it. The way that I had it most powerfully was once I um, was doing a shoot for Vice on HBO, and they told me I had to go to Tokyo with less than 24 hours notice, and that I had to start filming as soon as the plane landed, couldn't go to the hotel room. So I thought, all right, this is serious, no messing around, no time for jet lag. Like, I've got to fall asleep at 10 p.m. that night, wake up at 8 a.m. that morning. I've got to be awake all day, so I'm going to pharmacologically force this a little bit. I'm going to take a really high dose of this muscimol derivative at night to induce sleep, and I'll take Adderall during the day. That was the plan. So I took a high dose, I believe it was 45 milligrams, but don't quote me on that, of this muscimol derivative that's about the same potency, and um, at, at the equivalent of what would have been maybe 2 p.m. New York time, which I think was crucial because these things are, are hypnotic. They induce sleep. So if you take it during the day, you're less likely to sleep through the whole experience. And it was unbelievable. I mean, I, I, uh, I couldn't fathom the intensity of what I experienced. It was, you know, just this rushing sense of, of becoming a passive observer in my own consciousness and seeing all of my thoughts produced by someone else that were racing at a speed that was so fast that I found it physically dizzying and had to lay down. And I felt as if like the acceleration was pushing me toward an ultimate state that was sleep and that sleep and death represented the ultimate state of consciousness. Whoa. So it was, it was, and then, you know, then I had to wake up at eight and work the next day and people say, how did you sleep? And it's like, well, I actually had this, uh, uh, transformative existential trip accidentally, but, uh, <laughs> but, but have otherwise. you tried it since just purposely for, I mean, a couple of than, times. Yeah. Did you ever recreate that kind of experience? No, because it was, it was a bit much, I would say. And I know people that have taken even more and, you know, it turns into just your entire visual field uh, transforming into rotating cubes where each face of the cube represents a different aspect of your life, your future, your past, your present, you know, really dramatic stuff. So I think that potential exists with high dose muscimol. It's just hard for people to ingest it. Um, because of all the other material in the mushroom and the disgustingness of mm. consuming it. So is it possible that we've just, much like people have sort of uh, altered many different things like wheat and tomatoes and what have you, that at one point in time the mushroom was somehow different? Oh, yeah. I, well, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the, the evolutionary chemical history of all these different plants is a fascinating subject that's pretty much lost to history you know there's no like archaeological alkaloid analysis that i'm aware mm. of but it would be so fascinating to know because all of these natural products evolved just like the plants that contain them what were the intermediate materials what drugs have gone extinct have did our ancestors drive certain psychoactive plants to extinction there's a plant called sylphium that some people have argued that may have happened with it was a phenyl derivative um or like a fennel-related plant. Huh. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's really... And it, we've seen it with cannabis. You know, the black market encouraged everyone to produce THC-dominant strains because it was the most potent, most stoning, most bang for your buck. Yeah. Now, now we have the ability to change the evolutionary direction of the plant and to encourage the production of CBN or CBG or THCV or CBD or whatever. Hmm. So when you talk about a plant like 
the peyote cactus that grows so incredibly slow. And, you know, if, if that became something that was highly sought after, very, very valuable, it could conceivably be wiped out. Yes. Yeah, especially something really slow. Um, so there could have been substances like that that were very geographically local, a very small area that are just gone. Yeah, it's just a thought I just had, totally non-evidence-based, but it wouldn't be crazy if a lot of, the reason that a lot of these um, psychoactive plants that are present today tend to be less addictive is because all the addictive ones were harvested to extinction thousands of years ago, maybe. Something like that. I mean, these things do happen. If I guess we really wouldn't know, we really wouldn't have any way of knowing. But it's no fossilized plants, right? Right. It certainly didn't happen with coca, which contains cocaine, or with cats. So it probably didn't happen that way. But you know, you just don't know. Yeah, and I had read some theories that it's conceivable that the Amanita muscaria vary seasonably. Uh, so you have to figure out like when is the right time to harvest it because there are some plants, although of course fungus isn't really a plant. It's kind of the opposite of a plant. The way it ingests oxygen, it takes in carbon, it takes in oxygen and breathes out carbon dioxide like a like an animal does. But that it's possible that these things vary seasonably. That you have to catch them within a window of time, and that they also vary geographically. Like some places, they might be more potent. Like, you know, Cuban cigars grown on specific land have a distinctly more, uh, you know, more potent taste to them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because the biosynthetic precursors for all of these natural products come from the soil, typically. You know, amino acids and things like that. And and it's all going to, to change. There was an amazing experiment that was done where they started doping the substrate of psilocybin-containing mushrooms with other tryptamines. So they used, instead of... Um, these DET and DIPT, put it in the substrate, and they found that the mushroom would take that completely synthetic chemical that does not occur in nature. It would then 4-hydroxylate the indole ring just like it were a psilocin derivative and create natural product derivatives of these synthetic materials, creating these semi-synthetic hybrids between man and mushroom creations. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is like why the synthetic natural dichotomy doesn't make sense. Everything's evolving. It's a constant interplay between human and plant and fungus. You know, after we're all gone, all of our plastic bottles are going to be consumed by some bacterium that evolves to degrade all of these, you know, polymers, and that will create natural products from them. And will those natural products be natural products because they were derived from a substrate that we created? You know, it turns into like a very complicated issue, which is why I don't believe in the idea of natural and synthetic. Everything is simultaneously natural and simultaneously synthetic. Well, everything comes from earth. Yes. So even the most unnatural things that human beings have created are in a sense natural creations, like a bee creates a beehive. A beehive is a natural creation. Right. Yeah, it's a mind fuck. So to get back to Amanita muscaria, do you, do you know of anyone who's effectively regularly used it as a psychedelic? Yes, I've met, but not people who I wacky people. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I would imagine. Yeah, not yeah, not people where it's like, oh, that guy's a professor and he uses Amanita every night to go no. to sleep. He's doing really well. But but yes, wacky people. There's so much lore again attached to it, specifically because the Christian. Uh, I mean, the books by Allegro were were big, right? One of them was uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Christian Myth. That was one of his books, and that was the second book that he published after the uh, Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. And I think he did that because they took the Sacred Mushroom and the Cross off the market, right? Like, what didn't the Catholic Church buy out the rights for that, or was that a myth as well? I can't remember. There's something along those lines, but Jan Irvin republished it fairly recently with the um, the blessings of the Allegro family. But the the just the the whole connection to Santa Claus. And the whole connection to Christmas with that mushroom, it's, there's so much attached to that mushroom. People want that mushroom to be Jesus. That's the one. You know, that's the way. It's the prettiest. It's like it grows. It's got a mycorrhizal relationship with coniferous trees. So you find it underneath pine trees, just like the shiny presents underneath a Christmas tree. So people get so excited about that mushroom. Yes, they do. But yet no one gets off on it. Except wacky people. Yeah, it, it's a it's a complicated situation, and you know, just because something's convenient isn't a good reason to say that it's the truth. Like there are other psychoactive mushrooms that may have been used in the past. There are ones that we've discovered recently. There's a, a species called Rhodocolebia maculata. As far as I know, there's no information about humans consuming this mushroom, but it contains a salvinorin A type kappa opioid agonist. This could be a completely different type of psychedelic mushroom. No information on it exists. Maybe someone used it somewhere in the past. I don't know. Whoa. Well, isn't there, there are some psychedelic substances that have been discovered that have no history of human use, like isn't Hawaiian baby Woodrose, is that how you say it? Yeah. Doesn't it have LSD-like properties, but no history of human use? Um, that's a, a complicated question. Yeah, there's maybe not with Hawaiian baby Woodrose, but with morning glory seeds, there does seem to be some Mesoamerican history, although it's not as well founded. And morning glory seeds will put you on the moon, right? Well, they yeah, they contain LSA. And um, again, LSA is actually, Albert Hoffman, did a, the inventor of LSD, did an experiment where he injected himself with small quantities of LSA, but there aren't many... Uh, evaluations of the pure material. So the exact nature of the different components in those seeds remains a little bit mysterious as far as I'm concerned. Some people will suggest that it's the strongest naturally occurring psychedelic. Other people will say that it's not even psychedelic at all, that it's just a um, hypnotic. It just has a sort of sedating quality. I've used Hawaiian baby Woodrow's many, many years ago, and um, it's certainly psychoactive. Whether I would call it classically psychedelic is a, a complicated issue. It's kind of like a dreamy, unpleasant um, delirium. Hmm. Um, any other ones that we could go <laughs> over that are weird? Watch my show. I think you'd really like it. I'm sure I'd like it. I yeah. like all your stuff. Okay. Because it goes into lots of weird stuff. I just don't have enough time. I know. I can't There's imagine. There's too many things yeah. that are cool now. Yeah. It's one of the problems with, uh, Netflix and HBO and uh, YouTube and just, just too much cool stuff. Yeah. But this will be cool. Uh, I will definitely watch it. Okay. Uh, that was three hours, man. It just flew by. Wow. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. We're going to time warp over here. 
<laughs> so, uh, listen, this was way better than the first time we did it. <laughs> we were here. I think we got a lot of cool information out, and I really appreciate you coming back, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. Let's try me. to do this again, but not in seven years. Two quicker yes i hope for so. sure thank yeah. you uh and on twitter and instagram it's hamilton morris and your show is hamilton's pharmacopia it's uh is it available online because people watch it online yes it's on hulu and streaming on amazon and streaming on itunes and it's on viceland as well so Beautiful. yeah it's right. easy to find thanks man that was awesome yeah. appreciate it thank you